hello. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. Yes, this very special edition because, eh, Tim Burton episode, by the way, running a little late. Yeah. Uh, we had technical difficulties uh, over on our west, with our West Coast affiliate. Yeah. Our, <clears throat> our satellite got all mm-hmm. crumbled up. Yeah. You know what it was? Terrorvision. Carmageddon. Oh. Yeah. Did it all. Did it to us. Yeah. We're just we're just one of the many victims of Carmageddon. Mm-hmm. Do you well, know what Carmageddon is? We, no, I don't, actually. Because I've, I've been seeing nothing but people mocking Carmageddon. Hmm. It's just an L.A. thing. I think it's like raining cars or something. Yeah, I don't know what what that's all about. Mm. Instant Carmageddon's gonna get you. Yeah, yeah, probably. We all shine on. Yeah. Um, but we do have a very special episode. Yeah, um, per per request via email, mm-hmm. actually. Too. Do you, do you actually do you remember the person the name of the person who requested this? I think his first name was Brian. Oh, Brian. Brian. Oh, Brian. Thanks, Brian. Brian, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks uh, for the suggestion. Brian wanted to know our top ten favorite movies. I think we've recorded something like this similar back when you were doing ear drugs. Oh, it was gray noise for a while. Oh, great, great, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's not, you went through a lot of name changes. Not very, yeah. Uh, that's okay, you know. <laughs> Did I just depress you? Did I just bring the room down? A little bit. Yeah. I'm sad. Yeah. Well, you had, you had, to, you had to fire so many people off the gray noise. Like, the whole staff yeah. just went unemployed. Uh, that, was, that was brutal. It was. It mm-hmm. was. It was a hard time. I Fred. I felt like Fred McMurray mm-hmm. in uh, the apartment. Oh. So anyway, we're going to talk about our favorite movies. <laughs> you know what? You just reminded me of then hmm. Fred McMurray and the Absent-Minded Professor. Cause, yes, because you forgot that uh, we have to kind of make sense with our segues. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> so uh, no, we're going to be talking about our ten favorite movies. Uh, Probably going to be going. Imagine we're going to be doing the same kind of thing we always do. We go back and forth. Yeah, we like a little bit of the old back and forth. Yeah, um, which isn't a euphemism, even though the way he said it, it sounds like it. It's not a euphemism. No, uh, not at all. I mean, <laughs> this is going to be a very free form because mm-hmm. we're free, free forming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we're beat. We're beat. We're like we're like the beat poets of podcasting. I'd say definitely. I mean, I. God knows I do enough heroin. And this is the first time that the podcast will be recorded with alcohol in hand or in system. That's true. That's true. Um, Our last episode actually got 400 downloads. Oh, God. Which is twice as much as our previous record. We don't want to toot our own horn, but, you know. 400. That's good. There are towns in America that don't have 400 people. That's right. Um, Not many, but (laughs) I'm sure a couple. (laughs) Even Zack Snyder hasn't gotten to yeah. 400 yet. Yeah, so we so we bought some champagne. Uh, um, Jim is enjoying some Corbel right now. I'm enjoying a little white wine. Yeah. Just a little Moscato, you know. Some of that yellowtail, you know, because I'm fancy like that. No, we're a, a couple of pussies. We love wine coolers and shit. Mm-hmm. We like we like our, our uh, alcohol to be like our women. Sweet. <laughs> That was horrible. I, some sometimes I just like wish I could cut things out. We like our alcoholic, we like our women. White. Oh. Um, anyway, so let's go right into it, Jim. 
Should we? Yeah. Do you want to start or should I start? Because, you know, when the, when the Tim Burton episode comes around, we'll get back to our regular format with mm-hmm. emails and all that fun stuff. Which we'll so. be recording Wednesday. Yes. So when will that gonna, be going up? You're going to get two episodes in one week, folks. Mm-hmm. You'll be getting an episode probably uh, Monday and Thursday. Well, you'll be hearing this particular episode on Monday. And then the other one should probably be Thursday or Friday. Yeah. Thursday, bloody Thursday. Yep. Well. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited uh, because... Uh, we're going to discuss our favorite films, and there's been a couple of revisions over the years, and a couple new additions. Mm-hmm. Not new additions, like the band, mm-hmm. the boy band from the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a couple of Menudos <laughs> uh, in the past couple of years. Um, yeah. Only a handful of LFOs, let's be honest. Not many. No. Um, but Jim. there are some new kids on the block. That's actually that's actually a good one because that is that is what it is. It is, Jim. You want to start? You yeah. start. Um, we'll go through our runners up after we do our top. 10. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. normally how it's done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just like rattle off some titles that just barely made the cut or that... could have made the cut. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, number ten is a movie that has been floating around the old top fifteen for quite a while, and I watch it once a year, and I decided to put it in the top 10 for the first time and that would be the coen brothers barton fink which is my favorite coen brothers movie i think it might be mine too i'm pretty sure it is every time i watch it i love it more and more and um i don't know there's something about just the portrayal of being a writer and uh getting lost in your own mind uh isolating yourself in hopes of coming up with a great idea and uh you know, just just the madness that ensues is, um, you know, uh, sort of the trademark Coen Brothers zaniness, but also a lot darker and, you know, more twisted. Yeah, I, I think I think this is sort of it's sort of known as the more the most difficult and the most art house because of sort of the third act and the unusual place it goes. But it feels very impenetrable by the end. I, I, I feel like a lot of people forget just how fucking funny it is tony shalhoub yep. is so goddamn funny in this movie tony, mm-hmm. tony shalhoub hey you need a writer throw a rock in this town you'll hit one <laughs> hey barton throw it hard like he's so good tony shalhoub's great in uh, the other coen brothers i think he's only in one other coen brothers movie the, the man who wasn't there he he yeah, plays he steals that movie yeah he does movie. he really does he he's, he plays the lawyer who's trying to use the heisenberg principle yeah <laughs> to, 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 i think i like fast paced Tony Shalhoub, like crazy yeah. all Tony Shalhoub. I mean, he's good in Big Night too, but Big yeah, Big Night was a little a little different. I think yeah, he t- um, but he's so good in that. He's so good in Barton Fink, and uh, um, I cannot remember the name of the producer. He's even oh, better. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I think he's even better. It's uh, oh yeah, I forgot his name. Too. Bad with actors. Yeah, but, uh, no, he's good. He's everybody's great in this movie. It, it's one of my favorite John Goodman performances. Oh yeah, and. Uh, where it goes, I don't know. It's one of those movies that I guess could be considered more cerebral by the way, by how it plays out. Like, are you basically just, you know, does the hotel represent Barton Fink's mind in a way, and it catches on fire, and you know, like well, that's what I think. Thing. What I think kind of saves it from being too cerebral yeah. is that it doesn't. You don't need like you get emotionally what everything means, sort For of. Sure, you get. Like it's not like uh, like what's like something like Mulholland Drive or Racerhead or it's something. Too, some it's of the too more detached. Con- or the were of the more confusing Lynch movies. I would say where 
<clears throat> where where an interpretation is necessary. You don't need an interpretation in order to really enjoy and understand the ending, um, especially that amazing final shot where the bird just falls into uh, the water. Uh, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm a fan of when the Coen brothers have ambiguous endings quite a bit. Yeah. You Another, I, I would say that, and uh, obviously, I think a lot of people made this connection when it came out, obviously, but uh, a, a, a serious man. Yeah, that might be... In, it's definitely my top five Coen Brothers movies. Yeah, that's another that's another movie that's similar to Barton Fink, where it's just someone sort of falling apart. Though I don't yeah. think it's I don't think it's quite as vivid and entertaining and unusual as Barton Fink. But that's another yeah sort that's of a simi- movie, that's a movie where all the Coen Brothers elements come together so effortlessly. Yeah, me, and uh, I'm always enraptured by it. It's like in a completely immersive experience with that movie and. It was tough because I keep wanting to put a Barton, or I keep wanting to put a Coen Brothers movie in my top ten all these years, and I figure uh, this is this is the time to do it because I I watch this uh, within the year and I I love it all the more every time I watch it and it's yeah. always tough though when somebody asks you what's your favorite Coen Brothers movie yeah so well that's many things I, love I was about I was about everyone. I was I was about to say it, there are very few Coen Brothers movies that if someone put them in their top ten favorite movies of all time I would question it. Yeah, I think even something like Hudsucker Proxy, like I can totally see that sure. being someone like someone being super into that, and because it's such, especially a, if you like the art design and yeah, how it's, it's all put well, together. and it's and it's momentum and it's yeah. it's, a, it's its own thing, and all of their movies are so sure of themselves, and and they're also good homages to movies in general. Yeah, but never but never really derivative. Yeah, agreed. So yeah, Barton Fink's great. Um, my number ten is uh it's 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 a horror but of a less cerebral nature it's the texas chainsaw massacre oh yeah very visceral which is good lord well that's a well that's i mean that's the other thing skin that movie yeah well it totally um but it's there's actually very little violence in it yeah but i don't i feel like that dinner scene just oh my god that so much (laughs) dinner scene is the fucking most horrifying thing where there's the close up of her eye and you see fucking broken blood vessels. Yep. And there's something about that movie that um and I something about sort of when I was forming this list, something I sort of realized about all my sort of favorite movies is that there's just there's something else there that I can't quite put my finger on, which I apologize for because this is supposed to be a show where we talk about movies and well, it's not always easy to articulate no, it. But there is there's this nightmarish quality to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not surreal, mm-hmm. um, but there's just this sort of thing where the char- like they don't attempt to develop the characters. Um, the characters have names, and the characters never feel like oh, they're just stereotypes or whatever. But they don't. They never ever burden you with too much with their story. Um, uh, you you're sort of free to put yourself in their shoes in that way because, uh, which is another sort of thing. I think the problem with the remake is there's so much talking between them. There's so much like oh, I wanted to go to this concert. Now you're doing this, and now we got to bring your brother because da-da. and there's like um, there's like a whole lot of relationship stuff going on, which obviously isn't always <laughs> which is usually a good thing. But I too think- many shots of Jessica Biel's ass. Well, I mean, I'm not going to complain about Jessica Biel's ass. Ah, that's all right. <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't think the remake is horrible. Um, it's obviously uh, not as. It's obviously not as good. But I would never expected it to be as good. God, I don't think most it's... remakes of my favorite horror movies of that era. Yeah. Oh. Almost well, remakes in general. Yeah. 
I mean, there's I mean, there's there's a remake. There's a remake coming up in the podcast that we'll be talking about that does not apply. But I'd say most remakes uh, are pretty horrible. But there's something else. I think it also has to do with the way the movie opens, Um, not just with the like horrifying. And I've talked about on the before how I love sort of using atonal and strange sounds to create atmosphere instead of a score. Um, yeah, that movie does it really effectively. Now there's the there's like the really creepy camera sounds, but there's also the opening credits, which are like superimposed over I think like solar shots of the sun or something. I don't even yeah. know what they are, but it's it looks like it looks just like fucking hell, like just pictures of hell. Mm-hmm. And there's just this weird rattling, echoing sound, and it's always and it's always really unnerved me. And then when I one day I went on IMDb and trivia and it's actually, they recorded the inside of a slaughterhouse. Oh, so, which, you know, obviously wow. fitting. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty brilliant. Yeah. So, you know, and unlike something like last house on the left, which got lauded at the time and praised, especially by Ebert. Yeah. Um, the tone in this is consistent throughout. Oh, totally. And, and it's, that's, that's really important to me in most movies. Never most betrays movies. it. There's no bumbling sheriff and, you know, crazy. I mean, there's, there's, music. uh, I want to say Shelly because I just because yeah. of because of Friday Thirteenth Part Five I want to call all annoying characters <laughs> Shelly because yeah. of the sort of half mentally disabled kid in sure. uh, uh, New Beginning but uh, the kid in the wheel the guy in the wheelchair is sort of a little bit of the goofy yeah. um, it's sort of a I don't even know if it was a horror cliche at the time but it it definitely follows the horror cliche of the goofy kid guy who you want to see die but it's not so bad he's not. I, you almost, and, um, so it's, it's, he's but, probably my least favorite thing about the movie, but it's not to the point where, it, no, I don't it think it, I don't, I don't think it detracts from it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and just the individual shots, cause for a movie that's like shot really objectively and really, you know, with, on a very low budget with very little frills, just the way he frames some of the things like, um, when the girl is first running out of the farmhouse and she gets grabbed and pulled back in mm-hmm. and you just see her like you get, you see her go on frame and then she gets pulled off frame out of frame. And it's like, or when the, when the uh, metal door first slides open Ugh. and the, the very first time you see Leatherface, it's, and you don't even know like what the fuck he has on his face. Like, is that his face? Is that makeup? Yeah. Like, is that a, is he a mutant? What the fuck is going on? Like, it's really, there's just so many images. I mean, Meat Hook, uh, when uh, the kid, the guy in the wheelchair, again, want to say Shelly, but his name probably is not Shelly, uh, gets killed. Uh, the dinner scene, obviously, and obviously the chainsaw dance at the very end in the sun. In the <sighs> and when you think of the low budget and you think of this fucking shot in like 16 millimeter with and some of this shit looks like Malik good. Like, like that yeah. last shot looks like, uh, I mean, if it weren't for the subject, which is a person which is a crazy cannibal with a wearing skin on his face, throwing around a chainsaw. It looks like a shot from like days of heaven or something. Yeah. I never thought of that. That's interesting. <laughs> like, well, the... it's, that's the thing about this movie too, is that on top of all that, all the great praise you're putting on it, it's fucking scary. Yes. And that's something I'm really bothered by lately is that most horror movies haven't affected me. And I was like, well, it could be just, I'm desensitized, but if you put on Texas chainsaw massacre right now, I'd still be scared. Well, I think and have nightmares. Well, or, uh, we, we we sort of talked about this on Facebook, but I think one of the reasons that people like me and you or like actual horror, I always thought it was funny that the people least likely to be scared by horror movies are horror movie fans. 
Like, if if people weren't likely to laugh at comedies, they wouldn't be fans of comedies, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But but I think the problem is when we're watching a movie, we're like, we, because our brains... Analytical. uh, Yeah, we're being analytical. We're like, oh, what are they doing right now? Is this sort of a, you know, you you watched... um, Insidious. Insidious. And you were thinking, oh, it's sort of like a poltergeist thing. There's a little bit of a Suspiria thing. Yeah. Um, Whereas I think most audiences... When they go to the movies, they don't they don't yeah. view it on. They're just viewing an, an objective story level, like what's going to happen, what's going on, what was that sound, and they're right there. But and the thing that sort of makes Texas Chainsaw Massacre work like that, even for people like us, is there isn't a lot of meat. Now I don't want to say a lot of meat because it's. <laughs> I don't want to say a lot of meat because number one, I don't want to make a pun. Number two, I don't want to say wanna it's a. Me. I don't want to say it's a light film, but there isn't a lot of like metaphors going on. It's right. not Cannibal Holocaust where they're making a big statement. It's just like a perfectly tuned nightmare. Yeah, no, it's a great description of it. Yeah. And it's funny because, like, um, when I was thinking back on my memory of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, I would I was putting that movie up on a higher pedestal than even something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre because when you're young and impressionable and you see a movie like that for the first time, it's almost like it gets exaggerated over time if you don't rewatch it after. So oh many yeah, years. things grow in your. Yeah, like like <laughs> there's certain things like even just the home invasion scene of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, plays out completely different in my mind than it actually does in the movie. That's that's always funny to me. Um, I uh, sort of the funniest example of that in my life in my life would be um, I I saw the trailer for Child's Play two. It might have been Child's Play three. I don't I don't know. It probably. It, I remember – I think it was Child's Play 2 though because I remember the shot of Chuck – I remember vividly the shot of Chucky's eye going in a keyhole, which is from Child's Play 2. I saw huh. that trailer – or not even a trailer. I saw the commercial on TV. Nightmares for years. Crazy. Never saw the movie. Um, my nightmares very rarely resembled what the movie was about. In my nightmares, mm. Chucky was like a cousin. He was like a weird midget who people – who like lived in the neighborhood or whatever. Uh. But um no but like That's funny. and then I and then I watched it and and once I finally watched it it was completely different. Yeah. But just you know images start to grow and mutate in your mind and It's uh, interesting when that happens. Always, yeah. Anyway, so I'm that was di- my number 10. I don't want to go yeah. too long. I'm disappointed that the George Clooney's movie Leatherheads wasn't about <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You thought Leatherface was scary. This guy's got a leather head. Yeah, I know. It's disappointing. Scalp. Um, you mentioned Malik in that uh, description of mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre with some shots, and it was very tempting to put either Badlands or Days of Heaven, any number of Malik movies. I kind of love them all. And he only has a number. He only yes. has like a one-digit number. Five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's cool, but I love every single one of his movies. I, I don't know about equally, but... Um, his, Definitely the, one of the people we're going to have to cover I'd, next yeah, year. Yeah, I'd say uh, Badlands, Days of Heaven, and Tree of Life are my top picks right now, but I decided to go with a movie that kind of reminds me of a Terrence Malick movie, um, more for the imagery than the story necessarily, but it's something that um, when you watch it, you either, it washes over you, or you find it completely boring and languid and stilted and kind of not interesting. To me, this is one of those sort of artsy films that works on an emotional level, even if it's working um, more visually than anything else, and that is Vim Vender's Paris, Texas, huh, yes. which is a Criterion release that most people should own if they want to be challenged. It's kind of long, but it's really rewarding. It's 
Harry Dean Stanton in in a very sort of disjointed performance. He doesn't say a whole lot, if I recall correctly. And um, I think he has amnesia, if I if I remember. And uh, Dean Stockwell pr- plays his brother, and they sort of reunite after so many years. And Dean Stockwell reveals to Harry Dean Stanton that he's been taking care of his son. Because um, I guess, I, I can't remember specifically the exact storyline, but he disappeared at one point and I guess had amnesia and didn't realize he had a son. And so it's about Harry Dean Stanton reuniting with his son and going on a road trip together. Uh-huh. And sort of deciding that he wants to take care of his son. And <clears throat> Dean Stockwell and his wife are sort of upset about that because they've grown attached to taking care of uh, Harry Dean Stanton's son. Um, this movie is very, it's about a lot of long shots. It's very poetic without like the, you know, sort of Malick overdub narration that you've come to expect in his movies. This is more about look at this amazing Texas landscape and. You know, look at how little this character is in this big world that surrounds him, and how he feels small and insignificant. Um, but it's a really powerful movie, without any sort of puppet string emotion grabbing in any way. It's like, yeah. it's just you're looking at it, and it unfolds right in front of you, and you feel like you will put yourself in this movie, or you will feel completely detached from the experience. So is it about the his like sort of new relationship with his son? Yeah. I mean, I'd say it doesn't get to that point until like halfway in the movie, because he does try to find his wife okay. again, too. Like, I think that's the reason why him and his son go on the road trip, um, to try and find his wife, or his girlfriend. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was his wife at the time, and uh, they sort of all sp- split up at one point or another, and I can't remember specifically why, but... It's just about reuniting with family and trying to reconnect those bonds again. And it's 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 really interesting because Harry Dean Stanton is a blank slate in this movie, and the environment is sort of what um, fills that slate. And it's a really interesting movie to watch on a visual level, but also just because of how slow it is. And that that can be put that can be off putting for some people, but I find this movie to be really spiritual without even going anywhere near like religious allegories or anything like that it's just really beautiful to look at and i'm kind of amazed every time i watch it and i just got the criterion so i'm really really excited to rewatch it you're gonna i mean i can't obviously it sounds like this is not a movie for july no since we're since we're only watching shitty movies in july if you're just tuning in but uh Uh, it's one of those movies where yeah i'll be interested to hear your your take on it because it's something i've heard heard about for a long time but i never even got a and I actually kind of don't want to hear too much about it because I think it's rare nowadays that I see a great movie that I, you know, that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen already. Yeah. Well, I didn't give away some of the, well, no, no, no. There's, there's definitely some major yeah. things that happened that I didn't give away, but right. it's sort of the basic plot. And I actually don't remember. I, have, I haven't watched it in like five years, but I'm like in love with this movie, even if it's, again, it's almost like a Malick movie where it's hard to say, this is exactly why I love this movie, but yeah. It's it's an experience that I feel like is very rare nowadays when it comes to watching movies. Yeah. And the same goes for the next movie on my list, which we'll get to, which um, is kind of a surprise. I'm going to go ahead and say the same does not go for the next movie on my list. <laughs> what could it be? Uh, you're you're gonna I, I I know I know you balked at me putting on this on the on my list, and I'm pretty sure most of our audience will as well. But uh, it's I, not heat, is it? It's not. I, I know. I I'm gonna reiterate. You're one of the only people who doesn't like Heat. Heat is great, and uh, that's weird. Well, 
I, we were we were talking about this before we started recording, but Jim hasn't seen it since he saw it in theaters, and maybe every my, guest, every guest we have on from this point on be like, "Do you like Heat?" Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Like part of a part of a part of a guest questionnaire. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. we keep forgetting to ask them their top five favorite directors. Yeah, we got to remember that next time. Promise. Um, but uh, anyway, you balked at it, and I'm pretty sure most of our audience will. But I, I, it's a movie that I've seen a million times, and it gets funnier and funnier every time for me. It's Step Brothers. Um, now I'm gonna go ahead and say that I, I Anchorman. I is, wouldn't frown at that choice. It's just I, well, I wouldn't be you, it's high you, on my list of comedies. But go uh, ahead. Let alone in your top ten movies of all time. Fuck no. Yeah, but uh, I want to I want to sort of explain why because I know Anchorman is sort of everyone's go-to um, Adam McKay, Will Ferrell movie. Um, and it's, you know, it's great and it's crazy. And it was, and, and it was a crazy movie in, I think it's important to remember a time where movies weren't really that crazy. I mean, nowadays, mm. nowadays, like it feels like every other movie is trying to be like, well, what fucking crazy, stupid shit can we do now? But like, yeah. I feel like anchor, I'm talking about Anchorman now. Oh, okay. Not Step Brothers. Right. Cause Step Brothers was after this sort of thing was established, and even you know Adam Sandler began making Welcome to or not Welcome to the Zohan, but uh, <laughs> I thought you were gonna say Welcome to the Dollhouse. I'm like, what? yeah, Zippity um, Doo, Zippity <laughs> Doo, I'm gonna rape you. <laughs> that's, that's horrible. That's the worst thing I've ever said on this show. Um, no, it's a callback. Okay, here's why I like. Here's why this is my favorite Will Ferrell Adam McKay movie. Two very important reasons. Number one, I am not a fan at all of Will Ferrell's hyper-masculine character. Um, I just, I don't find it funny. I don't find, you know, Talladega Nights funny. I don't find him in Anchorman very funny. I mean, it's... Scotch, Anch- Scotch, Scotch. Yeah, like Anchorman, Scotch. he has his moments, but it's, he's mostly, uh, I don't know. It just, it feels, it well, doesn't... Comedy is the most subjective well, thing Well, right, 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 right. It's like, I'm not going to, you know, poo-poo on you. For, no. I'm not going to shit in your mouth. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, for, you know, that's why we're good friends, by the way. Yeah. You, you just don't shit in my mouth. No. I do it in your cereal, but... Yeah. But I, I, I don't know, because I eat Cocoa Puffs. Uh, and uh, <laughs> you have a bad diet. So it just comes out like Cocoa Puffs. I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> anyway, so I'm not a fan of his hyper-masculine character. And in Step Brothers, he plays sort of a quieter, more hurt type. And I think Will Ferrell's, like, infinitely funnier. Uh, number one, I think what makes Will Ferrell Adam McKay movies funny is the sort of really strange, odd places they go. And I feel like Adam McKay, as much as he wants to do really good satire and is, I don't think he's very good at it. Um, and no. I, I kind of, I, I couldn't. Especially with the NASCAR industry or whatever. Well, yeah, NASCAR industry, it's fine, but it's not, I don't think it's great um, satire. I don't, and I, I like the end credits of the other guys where he was just like, he just like had these little infographics <laughs> about capitalism. Like that was weird. Yeah, it was like, oh, thanks. Oh, yeah. I guess I guess I wanted to leave this comedy with a good feeling, but never mind. God, that's that fine. moment with the Rock and Samuel Jackson off the building. Oh, that's, that's one great. Of the funniest things. No, no, that's great. In all of Adam McKay's movies. So anyway, Will Ferrell plays kind of a quieter, like weirder, like more hurt type. Where um, and then the second reason I like it more is because it's John it's John C. Riley, and John C. Riley is one of the funniest people ever. Um. When when he's when he just lets him just be himself because he looks like a baby and <laughs> he has a giant head and he has an amazing voice and he he looks and sounds like a like a real life Muppet. He's a beautiful man. Yeah, he is so great. So, yeah. 
And uh, ever since Boogie Nights, I'm I have a man crush on John C. Riley. I just think he's adorable and yeah. hilarious. He's so fucking funny. And yeah, um, without trying. Yeah, he's just naturally gifted and, at being awkwardly funny and weird. <laughs> um. So. So those two factors make it my favorite Adam McKay movie. What that extra thing that makes it a movie I can watch seventy times. Like I literally, whenever me and my girlfriend don't know what to watch, we put on Step Brothers and we crack the fuck or up. They fuck. Whenever we don't know what to watch, we either put on Step Brothers, we fuck, or we put on Step Brothers and fuck because nothing turns me on more than boats and hose. Mm. For me, it's Shark Week. Yeah. <laughs> That's what gets me on. I don't know what the fuck you're talking. Oh no, there's a Shark Week part yeah, of the. Yeah. All right. It's uh, it's so <laughs> funny. I don't know. It's a comedy and it's really silly. And I think I think a lot of the things that people say about Freddie Got Fingered, I think really actually applies to Step Brothers, where it's like, oh, it's this hyper surreal take on the man child movie. Um, Ooh, good good point. Yeah, like I think Step Brothers actually does it, whereas. Freddy Got Fingered does that for like five minutes and then he fucking shits in cat's mouths or whatever the fuck he does in that movie. <laughs> well, I don't know. I find Tom Green to be funny in general. I don't know. I like... I, it's, I don't it's wanna... weird. I mean, that like, for some reason, there's things I know that I'm surprised I find funny. Yeah. Pee Wee Herman, still finding find yeah. funny. Tom Green. And these are... Th- I don't like crazy manic... I mean, we're going to talk about this on a Tim Burton episode. I don't find manic Johnny Depp funny yeah. or charming or interesting at all. I don't know why I find Tom Green and, uh, you know, Pee Wee Herman to be obnoxiously funny, but it it works. And sometimes when you play, you know, when you go up to 11 in the comedy scale, it yeah. works. Well, I think, I, again, when you well, like you just said, comedy is subjective. Um, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to say this is funnier than this, even though I clearly think Step Brothers is way funnier than well, it's Freddy Got Fingered. Funnier. It's funnier than Freddy Got Fingered, but I still What I'm saying is, but what I'm saying is... It feels more of a statement on those kind of comedy, like Adam Sandler, um, Arrested Development kind of comedy. Not the show it's right on, but you know what I mean. With the, the comedies with the themes of Arrested Development, it feels more like a take on that where like the characters that Will Ferrell and John C. Reilly play, they are written – like the biggest joke, like the running longest running joke in the movie is that they were written as if they were 13 years old. There is literally – no, other than the fact that the parents are like, ah, you're adults, why don't you get jobs? Like, nothing in their characters portrays their age in any way. Yeah. But for some people, that, that scenario, the man-child scenario played out as, uh, wore, wore as welcome by that point. And, like, that, that sort of manic energy of that movie, which I found very funny. Don't get me wrong. I think this is a hysterical movie. Um, but a lot of people were sort of put off by how vulgar and how... It's almost seemed like forcefully so. Um, oh, I don't think it's. I don't. I wouldn't say vulgar is the right word, but well, yeah. I mean, just the obnoxiousness. Though. Yeah, yeah. That'd be. I don't know. I don't think it's. I don't think it's that bad um, in that regard because the moments I like are quieter. Like when Will Ferrell, it, like there's just like tiny little things that he does that are so great. Like the first dinner scene. I think this might actually only be the extended version, where he he's like. They, like they talk about, oh, we mix ketchup and uh, mayonnaise together, and we call it fancy sauce. <laughs> and uh, John C. Riley, like just out of nowhere, he gets like really childlike. He's like, "Can I, can I have some fancy sauce?" And Will Ferrell's, like, "No, I'm not done." And like Will Ferrell is like piling like a pound of this fucking fancy sauce or whatever on it, yeah. and just the way he does, like, 
so fucking funny. And it's the little things. I don't think Boats and Hose is funny. I think that's actually like the least <laughs> funny part of the movie. Cause... Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I like it. It's funny. Um, but everything you're saying, just apply it to wet, hot Americans. <laughs> yeah. Cause I find everything in that movie. It's funny. a very specific dial that uh step brothers is set. Same way with you and wet American summer. It's yeah. very specific dial. It's set to that just fucking kills me. And I don't know how many people like, you know, look at me like I have lobsters crawling out of my ears when I tell them that's my favorite. I think, and I think wet, hot American summer has its cult fans. And then everyone else is just like, what the fuck are you saying? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I'm, I'm probably really, closer I'm will, in the second category. I'm willing honestly. to admit that. Not everything in the 90 minutes of What Happened in American Summer is laugh out loud hysterical. There's some things that totally fall flat. But for some reason, that doesn't bother me. I think even when it falls flat, it's still charming. And that's yeah, the thing yeah. about David Wayne in general. Like, even when something doesn't make me laugh, I'm like, oh, I still like him as a person. I like his, I like his tone. I like his delivery. I like his intention behind the laugh, uh-huh. even if it doesn't get me to laugh. Right. There's something about his sensibilities that work. Speaking of which, let's transition to my number eight. Go for it. Which is, I've been saying that. Wait. Oh, God. All right. Um, That was actually my number eight. I uh, skipped my number nine. I'll do my number nine next and you'll just have to to switch them. Uh, But anyway, go ahead. Do your your number eight. Number eight is, um, I've been saying Wet Hot American Summer is my favorite comedy. (laughs) But... I think in actuality, especially after rewatching this recently, because it was added to Netflix Instant, and this name that you're about to hear will appear later on the list, and I think he's the only person to, in any capacity, whether as an actor or writer, director, is appearing twice on my list. Uh-huh. And that's it could be, the again, the relatability factor between most of his characters. Mm-hmm. I think Albert Brooks... Lost in America is the greatest comedy of all time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I don't I don't know if, again, if 90 minutes of the movie makes me laugh. <clears throat> but in terms of social satire, in terms of the way it opens with just a long pan through this empty, or not empty house, they're packing and they're getting ready to move into a new home. And you see boxes everywhere, but... Um, in the background, his clock radio is playing Rex Reed and like a radio show talking about film criticism. And that opening is kind of reflective of Albert Brooks in general and sort of like his neuroses about expressing himself through movies. And he doesn't really address it literally as the character, but it's playing in the background. And then it cuts to him having reservations about moving to his wife and sort of playing on that whole kind of Woody Allen, neurotic, anxious, over-analytical guy who's unsure of what he's doing and if it's the right thing to do. And good Lord, can I relate to that, to, the, to that overthinking of decisions and big life choices. But it's also kind of about, uh, it's the quintessential American dream played, you know, over-exaggerated. There's, you know, obviously feeling completely unhappy with your job and unsure about if you want to be a suburbanite and if that's settling and, you know, you want to basically break free from society, drop out of society because you saw easy, because you saw a movie and he addresses that in the movie. He says, why can't it be like easy writer? (laughs) You know, like, and, and you're married and you have this great job and you have a great salary. And just because you don't get the promotion you want, 
you're going to fucking freak out. And like everybody wants to do that. Like it's almost like a cathartic moment watching him freak out to his boss when he doesn't get the promotion, you know, but most of us would rationalize and sort of think, you know what? Okay. I didn't get the promotion. I still have a job. Why would I blow that? But in this movie, you sort of live vicariously through him. And then you realize how poor of a choice it is to drop out of society completely. It's unrealistic. Um, And as this movie plays out, and they get to Vegas, and all all hell breaks loose. And there's so many set pieces. You know, we 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 mentioned you know bridesmaids this year as being pro- definitely the best comedy so far because of set pieces and the way that you know comedically things build and have a momentum. Yeah. And it builds to the laugh. Um, this does that, but for some reason, like the set pieces, whether it's Gary Marshall as the casino manager, everything. Like when there's a set piece, I'm laughing at every component, every whether it's Julie Haggerty playing roulette, I'm laughing the whole time. And it's also an uncomfortable, awkward laugh that we've kind of come to know with things like Curb Your Enthusiasm that, you know, this was ahead of its time. And I always feel like Albert Brooks's early films, his first three movies are were ahead of their time and they make me laugh. And it's that simple. Albert Brooks is he's sort of the master of you watch his at least this has been my experience. You watch his movie, you think, you know what, that was that was really funny. And but you sort of like that's about it. And yeah. then when you go back and you think about him, you're like, oh shit. Like he does this thing that where he'll like address these themes and ideas and concerns and struggles and neuroses and but he will not beat you over the head with it. Right. It feels very personal, but you can relate to it. And it's it's really amazing to like because there are things that happen in some comedies that are so exaggerated that they seem like out outside. Yeah, of this reality. is not this is not National Lampoon's Vacation, right. where it's a, just set piece after set piece of him in America and like. Yeah, it's there's something about this movie that you know as it's making me laugh, I feel such empathy for both of them, for you know like because they make horrible mistakes and it's like I can understand why they would make those mistakes and it's it's kind of like a life lesson movie. Um, some people felt like the very end was a compromise, like, oh, and that's, a, that's sort of like a critique of most of Albert Brooks's movies is that he can't come up with a really great ending. Yeah. Um, I think defending your life works. I mean, it's sort of like the kind of ending you'd expect in sort of a romantic comedy of sorts. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I actually like the fact that he says, you know what? Fuck it. We blew it. Let's go back to New York and try and fix this mess. And that's how it ends. Um, I don't know. I think this is a perfect comedy, and as much as Wet Hot American Summer sort of ta- taps into that awkward, vulgar sense of humor that I have, the sort of more absurd, I should say, not awkward, but absurd sense of humor that I have, this to me is more my style. Like how a lot of people feel about Woody Allen is kind of how I feel about Albert Brooks, although I realize Albert Brooks has only made, what, five or six movies? Yeah. I mean, and I don't love all of them. I think. The first three I actually do love. I know you have problems with modern romance, but well, I do that's love it. I actually like thinking about because I've been thinking about defending your life recently because I listened to a I yeah. listened to Adam Carolla's review or interview with Fucking Albert amazing. Brooks. Yeah, actually, you know what the best part of that interview is um, if you guys go into Adam Carolla's podcast. I don't know if it's even still up, but um, he interviewed Albert Brooks. The best part of that interview is Albert Brooks does not like Adam Carolla, and you can tell. Yeah, like Adam, like and Albert Brooks. And like they even discussed this, Albert Brooks is at a point in his life where he doesn't have to pretend and isn't afraid. So, but at the same time, like, and Adam Carolla knows this, 
but Albert Brooks is one of his heroes and it's it's like really like everyone in like normally that would make for a horrible fucking interview mm-hmm. and there are parts of where it's like kind of awkward where you just feel like Albert Brooks keeps trying to end the interview but Adam yeah. wants to keep going but like because everyone involved is like fully aware and fully honest about their position and how they relate to each other right it like it ends up being really fascinating anyway um and I feel like Louis CK was the funniest comedian right now Louis I'm, to Albert Brooks. I'm I if I had to pick one person to be the quote unquote next Woody Allen um Louis yeah. CK would yeah. easily be it. I cannot yeah. wait until he starts making feature films neither can I um I mean show is amazing we have I mean we're in a wonderful part right now where we get to in in a world where I love the form of short in film world. yeah no, and I love the form of short film but there's really no market for it and there's really no short films outside of student you know colleges and stuff mm-hmm. um we get we get every week to see one or two short films that uh Louis CK has made yeah and uh Louis CK is fucking great it's but Albert amazing. Brooks Albert Brooks and Louis CK and Woody Allen are all sort of that same thing where their comedy as absurd or as crazy as it might have been Albert Brooks with his sort of deconstruction um where it, like all of his bits were like sort of performance pieces where he's deconstructing things like the talking mime or the <laughs> ventriloquist dummy guy yeah. ventriloquist and all that are you know Woody Allen with his absurd stories and stuff like they all really come from human places yep and they really are great um st- they're really great students of the human character um and anyway my very roundabout saying I want to see uh, modern romance again because I have a feeling that part of my problem with that movie was it com- was completely different than I expected. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling that knowing that it's not a – like I was expecting it to be something along the lines of an Annie Hall or a Manhattan or something where it's about a relationship falling apart or whatever. Yeah. And it's so weird and it goes in weird directions and it spends time in things that aren't important to the story. Um, and I didn't know what the fuck it was doing and I, I kind of want to go back and watch it because uh, when I was – Actually, to catch my train of thought way back, I've been thinking about Defending Your Life a lot, and uh, when I first saw it, I thought, oh, that's a pretty funny movie, and that's about all I thought about it. And now, like, I sort of realize, oh, no, that sort of sums up life. Like, that's yep. that's pretty profound, actually. That's, um, and I think, it is. I think all Albert Brooks movies really grow in your mind after you see them, which is... Yeah, and, y- y- you know, I think after, after Defending Life, he made Mother, which is a really good movie, too, but... Um, the, both the muse and looking for comedy in the Muslim world sort of fell flat in that their targets really didn't, I don't know, didn't work for me on a, on a comedic level as well. Maybe if I rewatch them again, I'll feel differently, but Hollywood satires have sort of played themselves out. Although I love movies about making movies and it's kind of hard to dismiss them, but it felt like that came out around the same time as David Mamet State in Maine and the player, you know, obviously it came out way before, but so many movies, of that kind had come out that even an Albert Brooks commentary on Hollywood didn't feel as fresh right. at that point, which was disappointing, but let's move on. Okay. Yeah. Anyway. So my number nine, which I accidentally, number nine. I accidentally number said nine. my number eight as my number, number nine, nine. Uh, is falling down, which is another movie. I don't think anyone would have in their top 10. Really? Is that the Shel Silverstein book? Uh, that's falling up. Oh, um, no. so my, so my number nine is the giving tree. Uh, <laughs> Falling Down, which is by a director who's probably terrible, uh, Joel Schumacher. Ooh! Uh, um, he, he's, He'd be fun to do. He would be fun to do, but I don't know if there's really anything you can connect all of his movies with. Um, mm. 
there is an other thing, but there's something that really captivates me about falling down. Number one, um, I love it's 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 got it feels like um uh, like a it feels like an attack like this really sort of vicious and angry attack on middle America and sort of white males and their privilege and and but what's great about it is you don't realize it until you're like in the into the third act where you meet where there's that great scene where he meets the Nazi uh, who the guy who's running like a military supply shop and he turns out to actually be a Nazi. Right. And and there's that moment where the audience realizes that Michael uh, Douglas and the Nazi are pretty much the same, even though Michael Douglas doesn't yeah. believe it. <laughs> right. But it is the ultimate sort of attack on white privilege and this sort of and, – and I think it's uh, – especially these days with the Tea Party and all. I mean I don't want to get political because I'm not trying to fucking – I don't – I'm not trying to claim I know everything, so I'm not trying to. I don't want to. I think you should do this review in the Tom Morello voice. Yeah, <laughs> what does Tom Morello's voice sound like? Oh, that's, killing in the name of that's Zach. That's Zach De DeLoca, or or I could just do Tom Morello. Tom 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 Morello's Tom Morello's voice is through his guitar. So if I was doing it in Tom Morello's voice, it'd be like anyway. The great thing about falling down is, um, but. <laughs> so in that way anyway in that way it feels it feels personal um in a way that none of Schumacher's films really feel um this is it's it's a silly silly movie it is um and that's part of what I like about it as well is it's structured like a video game where he keeps encountering different people and then he keeps upgrading his weapon like in Doom where every level you're like, oh, here's the shotgun, here's the minigun, here's the plasma, you know, here's the rocket launcher. This should be a video game. At, at it the literally. Very, and at the very end you li you learn a lesson. No, at the, <laughs> and literally at the very, like towards the end he has a rocket launcher. Who has a fucking rocket launcher in anything? There's yeah. no such thing like fucking bazooka. It's fucking crazy. And he has it. And I think it's a really funny movie, and it's a really angry movie, and those things very rarely go together because, like, I, I, I think usually the anger sort of overwhelms any kind of humor that comes from it. Um, but it's very silly, and it's it's so watchable. Um, and it was, I mean, it was shot during the the, uh, the L.A. riots, uh, and it's it's totally about that. It's about this weird point in America, the same sort of thing that, you know, like, uh, like, like, you know, Malcolm X and stuff was the sort of point in the early nineties, um, where just people didn't know where they stand and shit was going crazy. And do you ever see that TV show, Malcolm X in the middle? Yeah. That's Sorry. actually a, uh, you, that's a mad TV sketch. Oh, so, uh, shit. you're just, you're as clever Damn as it. mad TV, Jim. I hate that. Yeah. That makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah. At least I'm more clever than mad city with, Mm -hmm. With uh, I think it was Mo Collins as the mom, <laughs> and uh, and uh, I can't remember the I can't remember the black cast member who would do all I the. I can't impressions be as graceful as my brother and my brother and me with the non sequitur. <laughs> That's fine. Pop culture references. No. no, 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 no. That's fine. Anyway, I love falling down. It's a silly movie. It's not one of the greatest movies of all time. It's not in the top two hundred movies of all time, but it is in my top ten because. It is just so watchable and so entertaining, and I think Robert Duvall's great in it. I uh, 
I don't understand. He's under- always good. Yeah, I don't understand. Even in shitty movies, he's good. I don't understand. I don't think this is a shitty movie, but I don't understand the whole thing about him and his wife. <laughs> like, like there's this like running subplot going on where his wife is. Uh, I remember that. Um, where his his wife's like a worry ward, and she's always like, "Just come home, come home, please." And it's like, mm. it 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 doesn't really add up anything. But and what's funny is that the the guy who wrote this movie, yeah. His only other screenplay would be one of the worst movies I've ever seen. What's that? Car 54, where are you? Oh, yeah. What's that about? Is that about a missing car? It's, it's, <laughs> no, it's Dude, Where's My Car? Dude, Where's My Car 54? Um, Dude, where's... He wrote Dude, Where's My Car? No, he wrote Car 54, Where Are You? Which is um, an adaptation of a TV show that was really funny. Black and white with um, fucking Herman Munster. What's his name? Fred Herman McCurry. Munster. No, it wasn't. No, Fred McMurray was Fred Gwynn. Fred, Fred Gwynn. Gwynn. Yeah, um, it was a funny show. My dad knew. Dad oh, you don't want to go Call Fifty Four. <laughs> yeah, a lot dad. of bad history on Call Fifty Four. <laughs> Call Fifty Four gets lost we, a lot. We watch this on like, at night all the time. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but by the, the way, fucking that is... movie is like Police Academy bad. Yeah, yeah. No, Police Academy sequel bad. Yeah, it's Police Academy Four bed. Oh, it's um. So how my the fuck assignment did that at guy Miami write Beach. this movie and write an amazing screenplay? Like, I don't. I don't know. Who if knows? The, I don't know if the screenplay is even amazing. I think I just I really feel the anger. Um, number one, also I think Joel Schumacher doesn't get credit because he makes retarded movies. <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> he made Batman and Robin. Uh, he made Batman Forever. Um, I uh, like. By the way. One of the guys in my study group who's really smart, who's yeah. into physics and all this stuff. Yeah. You know, um, his favorite Batman movie is Batman and Robin, and I thought I was going to die. Like, well, my face. I feel like when you decide that Batman and Robin. Younger. He's younger. And like, no, when he no, was no, a no, kid, no. When he was a kid, he thought it was fun. <laughs> well, no, no. I think I think when you decide that Batman and Robin is your favorite movie, what you're really deciding Not is I don't like. movie, but favorite, favorite Batman. Batman. No, what, I'm, what you're saying is you're deciding you don't like Batman movies. Probably. Yeah. Like, that's sort of... Like, Superman 3 is my favorite Superman movie, but that's just sort of more of a testament of how I don't like superhero movies. You and Jay can bond over that together. Yeah. There you go. That'll be nice. I love Superman 3. Anyway, uh, falling down my number nine, which I accidentally put in the eight spot. Hey, Jim, what's your number seven? Ooh, it's not seven, because that would be too predictable. Although I'm a big Fincher fan. Um, But this next movie is not a David Fincher movie. It is one of my favorite directors, top 10, maybe top 15. I haven't made a top 10 directors. I made a top five. Anyway, um, probably my favorite horror movie, but at the same time, it can be considered science fiction as well. And that would be John Carpenter's The Thing, Mm-mm-mm. which has amazing special effects, amazing performances. But the thing I love about these types of movies... It's the same thing with, like, your Rio Bravo, or uh, you just get, you know, like when we had the Walter Hill episode, and I mentioned this about Southern Comfort, if you get a great fucking ensemble of awesome male actors together, and they're stuck in a predicament, trapped, any sort of claustrophobic element, and they're trying to reason their way out of the situation, they stop trusting each other, um... They second-guess their decisions and try to reason their way out of a, of a horrible situation. Ugh, that scenario alone is enough to sell me on a movie. And when you have this... this no women, um, though. No. It's got to be all men. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Only Y chromosomes, please. Ugh. 
Yeah. And Kurt Russell's beard. Mm. Wilford Brimley's diabetes. <laughs> Wilford Brimley's everything. Oatmeal. I love when he's digging around in the in the alien his, autopsy and he's his, like his, squishing it around and yeah. shit. Oh, it's so fun. His Wilford Brimley has a lot of fun in this movie. Yeah. More fun than he did in Cocoon. This is this movie has a really good cast. It does have a really good cast and it's really fucking it's it's tight. Yeah, it's really tight. It's got a great cast and it's really tense and it's one Whoa. of those rare movies that is both psychological and has the greatest um gore and yes. creature effects ever. You it's, it's really hard to merge of those all things. Worlds for yeah. Me. Like what what other movie is both like a tense uh paranoia thriller and has a guy splitting in half his head splitting oh. in half turning into teeth and then start chewing on another guy. Patrick put it on now. <laughs> the more we talk about it the more I want to watch it. And it's got it a again. good score too. Yeah. Everything about this movie is perfect. By Ennio Morricone. Much, like I can't I, I've I've defended some of John Carpenter's weaker movies. Some people don't like In the Mouth of Madness. I love it. I, I don't know. There's something about most of John Carpenter's movies up until his last two. You know, well, I don't like Village of the Damned very much or Memoirs of a Visible Man, but I don't know. There's something about that guy. He frames and scopes so well. He's really fucking just... He knows where to put the camera. He knows yeah. how to... You know, get you to jump without resorting to jump scares like you'd expect in a lot of movies nowadays. I don't know. He just really works in like how you were describing Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I feel that way about the thing. I feel that way about Halloween. Like it just really works on so many levels. Yeah, Halloween probably my second favorite horror movie, and that's yeah, that's another movie that sort of exists in this other place other than the exact story it's telling, where it, you. Russ you, found it boring. Really? Yeah. Well, Russ, Russ has strange taste in yeah, we'll everything. Yeah. But uh, I'm sorry, Russ. I love you, Russ. You know that. We but, all uh, do. But um, Halloween, I I always forget that it takes place in Haddonfield, and I'm always I always imagine mm. it that it takes place down the street. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No, for sure. <laughs> the thing is so fucking good. Um, the what, what's your favorite scene? Beautiful in the thing? ending too. That's that's tough. There's so many. It's Not many horror movies have the great ending. It's yeah. hard to end a horror movie because you got to top everything that came before it. It's like most of the memories of that movie too is like some of the, just some of the visuals. Like uh, you know, I, I think it was when Keith David and the thing is f- like I don't even know what kind of a creature it is at that point where it's crawling on the floor and coming after. Oh yeah, I don't even know what the fuck it was. Was it the, the dog? I can't remember. I can't remember what it was. I mean, when it first manifests itself to where you realize what's going on, I think it was the dog. Yeah, it's the dog, and its a te- and it, yeah. its head splits open like a right, like a bloody right, flower, right, right. and it. Yeah. Oh, that man. is my my favorite scene is definitely the. It's like right up there with Rick Baker's uh, effects in America World. It's Rob Botton who did the effects for yeah. the thing. I want to say. I think so. I may just be picking a name that he he might be the drummer for the Who. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's Keith Moon, um, but. Uh, my favorite scene in the thing is the blood test. Yes, yes, good call. Uh, that that scene is fucking beautiful the whole way through. You don't through. know how it's gonna play out. Yeah. You don't know how it's gonna play out. It has that. It has those great cuts where um, you 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 do you cut. It's from like a close up to him burning and and it's mm-hmm. just sizzling on the blood to a person behind him. Oh. <laughs> I love those cuts God. where they, they, you know, like rightly, they just skip the untying and everything and it's just, and then suddenly there's another person behind him. Yeah. Um, and it has that great, great final line at the end. Now, if somebody would please get me out of this fucking chair. Yeah. <laughs> I believe that was, 
No, that wasn't the farmer from uh, Babe. Although they look kind of alike. It does look. It does yeah, look like. I can't remember uh, his name. It's he, a different he played guy. George. He played George Bush Senior. Yeah. I'm. I'm. For, hold on. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. George Bush Senior in W. And he was also in Six Feet Under. Um, his name is James Cromwell, and he's great. He's, but he's I don't in think. The thing? I don't think he's in the thing. Hold on. Let me check real quick. I get him confused with the other guy. No, it's not James Cromwell in the thing. Okay. Well, hold on. Actually, let me. Before I say anything, thing is scroll 82. Down, yeah, scroll down to 82. I, no, I don't think it is. They look a lot alike. No, it's not. It's not him, but it does look like I know him as the father from House Sitter yeah. with Steve Martin. <laughs> That's how I know him. But he's great. No, fucking John Carpenter's the thing. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, What's your number? F- my number seven is yeah, seven. is oh, another yeah. yet another movie that I don't think is really going to be on anyone's list, um, but fucking hypnotizes me every time I watch it, and it, it's not a movie I can really easily put into words that it I can't really explain why it's a great movie. I know why it's an important movie. It's uh, Mondo Cane. Um, I always called it Mondo Kane until I realized <laughs> that it was Italian name and. Kane is actually Kane because it's canine dog. Um, but I've never seen it. This might be the first movie on the on the list that I've never seen in its entirety. You showed me bits and pieces. I think you it. fell asleep, or maybe okay. I just, or did I show you bits and pieces? I have a tendency to do. It that. is. It is the first shockumentary. It is pretty much all of Fo- all of the of death. Yeah, yeah. Face of Death, all of Fox's programming, primetime programming <laughs> in the nineties, uh, World's Deadliest Police Chases, all of that sort of thing where. Under the guise of, we're teaching you, this is important, we're educating you, it's really, holy shit, look at this fucked up shit. <laughs> um, there's a lot of things that, it, it was the first movie of its sort, and it sort of it sort of kicked off, I believe, I, I could be mistaken, I'm not a scholar in this area, but I think it kicked sort of kicked off the Italian exploitation era, um, came out in the late 60s. Hmm. It is... Uh, it's a series of footage. I'm sure some of them, some of it they shot. Uh, some of it was just footage they uh, bought from other people who shot footage in Africa or South America, or you know, strange sh- footage of tribes with bones through their noses, like and them killing uh, or like Chinese people killing snakes, or and then some of it is obviously staged, where it's like l- naked women chasing a. Uh, like, what's what's fascinating about the movie for it's me? The way it's edited. Right? Well, well, yeah. What makes it sort of something bigger than itself to me is it's it's this weird stream of consciousness editing, where like just the last thought that the narrator has will be picked up at the beginning of the next segment um, by the narrator, and it's and it's this per- and it's perfectly paced where it goes from silly to gross to disturbing too weird to just offensive and racist it's it's a super racist movie <laughs> like they have a like it's pretty much just like racism footage. is so funny it, it's pretty much just like footage of like south south american tribes and stuff eating yeah. and just and just being like look at these savages when they can't eat they will eat their babies and like and uh it, it's it's really racist and what's sort of really super fascinating about it is that the narration it, you can't really ever trust it. Sometimes it's exaggerating what's going on. Sometimes right. it's completely 100% misrepresenting what you're actually watching. <laughs> uh, it's 
it, it it's in like a super eight like there's one part where it kept intercutting a chinese party with a chinese hospital and it said these people are dancing because they're because their loved <laughs> ones are about to die the chinese people say hurry up and die please like it's like super weird uh but there's something in the way it's edited where it n- is never boring because it's never uh the other thing is i have i'm sort of squeamish when it comes to real life stuff but because this is this was shocking stuff in the 60s. By now, it's just sort of weird and quaint and fun. Um, there's only like a few scenes that really still irk me. Kind of uh, like Pajama Party. Yeah, I love. <laughs> I do. I actually love Pajama Party. I, I love know. all the those Roger. He loves having Pajama Party. I love those. Uh, <laughs> no, I love all those Roger Corman like beach movies. Those are fun, but that's that's a different sort of thing. That's camp. Um, but there, save that for a different. Bonus yeah, yeah. Episode. There are there are a few like there are a few scenes like where they're shoving sea urchins down sharks' throats. Oh. And there, there's a person, like, flagellating himself and, like, running down, like, a Spanish street, like, wiping his blood on all the walls. Ugh. And there's, uh, there's like, a – it's, like, a – it's an Asian army of some sort. If I had to guess, it would be Thai, but I'm not going to say for sure. And they're just decapitating cows. Ooh. So you see, like, in one sword stroke, like, a cow's head coming off and blood spraying everywhere. And that's probably the uh. grossest part of the movie. Um, but then there are parts where it's just, like, this is a restaurant in New York where they eat bugs. And then and then it gets even weirder where there's a part where it's like this is a pet cemetery. They bury their pets as if they're actual people. <laughs> What's that Ridge about? Up. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Ah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Don't want to bury a pet there. A lot of strange people over there. <laughs> and then it's like these are fat old people working out. Why would they do such a thing? Like yeah. it goes from and then it goes from like genuinely like compelling footage of like sea turtles like lost in the desert and and like and uh or footage of uh of like people catching bird you know catching seagulls with ropes and like fucking all sorts of weird shit going on that um and it, that's actually compelling and then there's like a there's like an eight minute segment where it's just drunk germans and there's no narration like the whole movie is wall-to-wall narration and then for eight minutes there's no narration and it's just germans getting drunker and drunker and and then like the morning after and they're just wobbling like that's not even weird. Like that's not that. Like how did that fall in even into the category of shockumentary? Because it's not. It's not anything that you wouldn't see in any city of people getting drunk at bars or whatever. But yeah, it's such a weird and singular movie. And I've seen like three different versions of it, like oh. three different edits. Um, the the version I have is sort of a shortened version, but I kind of like it because it doesn't wear out its welcome. I can't defend this as one of the greatest movies of all time, but I it's a favorite. It's definitely one of the yeah. most compulsively watchable, where I put it on and I just get hypnotized by the fucking bizarre images. And you start jerking off. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say every single one of these movies on this list, and even a few of the runner-ups, I jerk it. You're going to yeah. jerk it. Oh, well, yeah. You're going to watch Falling Down. You're going you're gonna to see... Especially uh, in the thing when the dog's head splits You're going to see the bloody flower yeah. of the dog. What does that remind you of, George O'Keefe? I don't oh, know, but I'm going to jerk shit. it. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, yeah. you, you mentioned the words weird and singular, and that totally applies to my number six pick, which happens to be my all-time motherfucking favorite Martin Scorsese movie, and that is After Hours. Yes. I cannot get yes. enough of this movie. Compulsively rewatchable. Can't get enough of can everything I, in this movie. Can I tell you something? Hmm. When I met you, you know, we talked about movies and stuff. And you and I, I had not seen After Hours, and I hadn't really heard anything about After Hours. 
And you said, oh, After Hours, that's my favorite Scorsese movie. And I'm like, what the fuck? How could that be better, better than, than Good than, f- good Goodfellas and Taxi Driver yeah. and Raging Bull and Last Nation Christ? I'm like, you're full of shit. What the fuck is he talking about? How is that your favorite? And I was, like, I literally got worked up. And then, <laughs> I, and then I saw it, and it is fucking great. Yes. Uh, it is I totally understand why this why this is your favorite. Yeah, it's it speaks to me in some weird way. I mean, most of it's like obviously I can't really relate to the predicaments that he gets into because they're so exaggerated. But, the, but it's just the overwhelming feeling of being lost and oppressed and Yeah, because I visited New York. Yeah. And although I was with somebody who was kind of familiar with the environment, some of the people we were like encountering were totally fucked up and out of their minds, not to the extent that they are in this movie, but uh, people, it's pe- almost like Martin Scorsese knows New York just as well as Woody Allen. and But they know very different parts of yes, it. Yes, yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Uh, and oh, I'm like, sorry. And, no, it's okay. No, Martin Scorsese like just knows the weird seedy underbelly of New York and finds the weird fucking punks. and fi- But, he, you know, he, he finds them interesting, and that's why he puts the camera on them. And I, I realized that this was like a script that just sort of fell into his lap and it's not something he would normally do because he makes sort of, you know... I believe he was still struggling to get Last Temptation of Christ yeah, in production. Yeah. And this was just... I, and it's what's, what's, that's, what, that's what makes Martin Scorsese so great. So like even a movie that could be considered an afterthought for him... It's oh yeah! Fuck, like it's so energetic. It's so fast paced. The camera keeps on moving. The, the, that great shot where, from the keys perspective, when she tosses the keys down yeah. from like the third floor. Yeah, that's where he, they just literally just dropped a camera off a building. And I know I, I beat this, you know, this 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 horse over and over and over again mm-hmm. on Evil Dead too. But I love imaginary camera work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Imagine like, how how the fuck did this camera get there? Or point of view shots? Or really fast tracking dolly shots things like that that he did so amazingly well in goodfellas too is also utilized beautifully in a very sort of absurd surreal tale about a guy who just wants to go out on a date an impulsive date with a girl one night that he meets at a restaurant and fucking hell breaks loose of him trying to get there and then what happens after he does meet with her and he you know it's like everything that piles on top of this guy you feel for him, but he's kind of an asshole. You ever, um, you ever read? You know, you, 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 you're a fan of graphic novels. You ever read Daniel Cloez, uh, Cloez's like a velvet glove, um, wrapped in iron or something mm, like that? Not that one, no. Um, well, I always, I always, I always connect these movies because there's one thing that that Scorsese does in this movie that's really interesting, where he works really heavily with symbols. Like these things keep popping up. Um, these repeating motifs of like scars, like scarred women and, mm. and like just these things keep popping up and they're never given an actual meaning. They just, yeah. it's like the whole movie exists. Like the bagel and cream cheese paperweights. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, like, it feels like a horror movie. It does. It's like, how can this shit keep happening to him? And what a weird coincidence, you know, it's like. Yeah, people it, are like, it feels almost like like a Scorsese take on it, like a David Lynch movie almost, yeah. where he gets keeps getting sucked deeper into this world and you don't exactly know what's going on. Well, if I were to make a movie, I would want to make a movie that's like After Hours in a David Lynch kind of world because I love running into really weird characters and they could be in it for five minutes, but if they make... And that's the thing, everybody that shows up in this movie, even John Hurd or... 
Catherine O'Hara or any character that shows up in this movie plays some sort of significant role in how the rest of the night plays out for better or worse. Mostly worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, Cheech and Chong show up and they play a big <laughs> role. And it's like, I don't know. This movie works for me from beginning to end. Nothing feels... Like, even when it slows down and he's having this slow dance with a random woman at a bar, it feels significant in some way. And this movie feels significant. I mean, you everybody loves Goodfellas, and it's actually in my top 20. Yeah. And most of Scorsese's Goodfella, movies are Goodfellas amazing. is one of those movies that I feel almost like it's not – it's sort of like if, if you ask someone what their favorite band is – and they say the Beatles, yeah. you learn nothing about their taste in music, which when you're asking someone their favorite band, that's what actually what you're wanting is what's your general sort of taste in music. Yeah. And if they go the Beatles, you go, well, fuck, I'm no longer, <laughs> you know, and I feel the same way about Goodfellas where it's like, oh, Goodfellas is in my top 10. It's like, well, that doesn't really say anything because fucking everyone loves Goodfellas. That's that's yeah. everyone's favorite movie. It's like the Wizard of Oz. No, no, no. it's, <laughs> it's replaced kidding. Casablanca, it's replaced Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it is America's favorite movie is Goodfellas. And if you kind of want to get a sense of my personality, it's mostly represented in this list, and that's kind of what I did, and my sensibilities, what the things I love. If you sort of combine the worlds of Paris, Texas, Lost in America, and After Hours, you'd have my personality. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, it, it sort of applies later, too, in terms of the characters we're going to talk about in these movies, but um, the worlds, I think, that these movies create are really, I don't know, profound to me. Yeah, After Hours does something where you, you always feel like something's going on outside of the story. Yeah. Like yeah. there's something coming, there's something happening, like things continue to pick up steam despite the fact that you don't see what's happening. Yeah, it's it's like a visual panic attack. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> it really is. That's trapped. a great way of describing it. Thing. But yeah, that's no, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad we're doing this list just so I can reiterate my love for that movie too. All right, my number Keep six. Going. My number six, uh, fuck it. I cannot think of a uh, segue. He's... My number six is American Movie. <laughs> no, good uh, choice. Very good choice. That's It's my favorite documentary. It's it, it, like... You love movies about making movies, too. I, do, I love I love them. And I think, I think all fans of movies... Uh, I, I mean, I love... It, they're, they're inherently compelling because it's about... Especially when it's low budget, because when it's low budget... In order to be a director, you kind of have to be a con artist because there's really no like the, yeah. these people that you're tricking to be in your movie and to hold gaffer like to hold the the boom mic and to to uh, to be extras and all that like there's no reason for them to give a shit whether this movie gets made or not. They're not getting paid. They're not getting famous. It's not helping anyone's career. They don't have an acting career. Um, so I, I you know everyone finds I think low budget filmmaking is sort of inherently a really compelling uh, idea, but um. What makes American movie so great um, is, it, like, like I think all great sort of things, it's both inspiring and depressing at the same time in like the same frame. Mm -hmm. um, you really, really, I mean, it's it's more depressing once you actually know that Mark, the the subject of the movie, Mark. By the way, it's about a man who. Uh, it's a documentary about a uh, man in uh, Wisconsin who wants to make the great American movie um, about, like, blue-collar people. And uh, he struggles with alcoholism and not having any money, so he decides to make this lower-budget horror movie. And even that ends up being, like, a trial by fire. And there's this great cast of characters. His fucking uh, uncle is insane and wonderful. Um, and they keep bring going back to his uncle. And what's um, what's 
great about the documentary is it's not about him making Coven. It's not about it's not a behind the scenes documentary. Coven is the name of the uh, the film he's the horror film short horror film he's working on. It's not about it's not a behind the scenes of the making of Coven. It's about him. It's about him as a character, and it's about him and in the place where he is in life, and and how he he has this uncle who has sort of at least early early stages, maybe even later stages of dementia, and yeah. and just doesn't always know where he is, and lives in a trailer, and he spent his whole life, uh, you know, he doing he like it's revealed that he wrote a bunch of poems and songs and stuff, and then he never did anything with them, and there's this sort of and it's and it sort of acts. Like it's number one, it's an, a he's a fascinating and compelling character to watch, and number two, it acts as sort of this ticking clock, this sort of looming threat over over him, where you you sort of feel, oh, I know what's going to happen to him if he doesn't make this movie, if he doesn't end up you making the great American movie, he's going to be stuck in Wisconsin like all these other people. He's going to be an alcoholic. He's going to be working shitty grave jobs at graveyards and uh, yeah, stuff sad. like that, yeah. and it's. But at the same time, there's such friendship between him and his uh, friend. Uh, I, yeah, I can't I'm gonna, remember his name either. I'm going to look it up real quick. But It's interesting, though. It's like even between this and Crumb, like these characters seem like, yeah, they would be in a graphic novel or they wouldn't be. They would be in a movie, but they're so uh, quirky and strange yeah. and weird. And it's like you would think that this would be a fictional movie, but they're so they're so real. Mark. I, I was saying, that. I was saying, Mike. Mark is the name of the director, and Mike right. is the name of his friend. Yes. Okay. Um. It, it, yeah, they're totally very strange, and yeah. and they almost feel like a Christopher Guest character, like movies from a Christopher Guest movie. Uh-huh. Right. Or they could be serial killers, but <laughs> but they're still so wonderfully endearing. It's almost like Quentin Tarantino, like. He always said that he probably would have been a serial killer instead of a filmmaker. Well, just because he's so fucking weird and twisted. I don't buy that. No, he's just saying that just to be right. You know, Quentin, but whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I think I think the I think the members of Slipknot have also said the same things in interviews. I don't I don't believe either of them. Um, but but he like I mean I don't think he's gonna be a serial killer. I think he's gonna be what he is now because yeah. the sad fact is this movie was made in 1999. And uh, it is now 2011, and he still has not really done anything, despite... That's kind of sad. Despite being the subject of an insanely popular... Like, this is a really popular um, documentary. Um, getting his name out there, having the kind of publicity that no struggling filmmaker in the world has, like, ever had. Um, nothing. He's done mm-hmm. nothing. Um, and it's sad. Uh and included on the DVD of American Movie is the short film Coven he made. And it's pretty mediocre. Right. There are parts that are effective. The acting is bad. He he unfortunately chooses to act as the lead. He's not a good actor. Right. Um, but it is, it's just – it's – in a larger scale, it's about the American dream. And I mean it's – that's – I mean that's – he explicitly says I believe in the opening monologue about mm-hmm. the – sort of that same thing that it's this sort of idea that struggling against all odds and coming from a place where no one believes in you. And you know, he's, he's a, he's from a family. His mom is a Dutch immigrant or whatever. And he's lower class and like, but he has such conviction that you really, 
believe in him. And then there's that, you know, triumphant moment. He gets Coven made and it's, and he finishes yeah. it and it's, and you know, it, it debuts in the theater and fuck like what it's more amazing. do you want? Yeah. yeah. It's great, and it's it's that's so, what you want to see. Yeah, it's hard. It's an underdog, story. absolutely, and it, but it's not an underdog story that that pulls any punches. It's not like mm-hmm. there's okay, uh, King of Kong, Fistful of Quarters. Yeah, that is a bullshit movie. I don't know if you know, like no one really, not many people. It's probably, entertaining. No, it's very entertaining. It's a yeah. it's great movie. I love watching it, but it is the story it presents is bullshit. Um, hmm. the, uh, like the, the facts and the events were willfully misrepresented to take, so they could structure it like a sports kind of movie right? under like a Rocky kind of a thing. They're supposed to remake it, which is the most ridiculous thing. I've. No, ever. that sounds good to me. That sounds like the thing you would like as like as a mockumentary. That's the, oh, as a mockumentary. Yeah. That's what the director what? said. Yeah. I Why? feel like Seth Gordon has lost his mind after making four Christmases and now uh, horrible bosses. But I liked Horrible Bosses, despite a mo- Why would you remake a documentary as a mockumentary know. and the documentary was That's already I've, comedic? I've heard, it, I've heard about it on three different podcasts. I'm like, what? I don't get it. I don't understand it. That is so bizarre. Yeah. But anyway, American, my point is it's an underdog story, but American movie does not cut – it does not pull punches with right. – with, it, it is not like uh, – it is, it is not saying that he makes it. In fact, it is implying he doesn't because it ends with a title card that says two years after the, we filmed this, he still hasn't d- gone any farther in Northwestern. Yeah. Much like Albert Brooks's character in Lost in America. I mean, yeah. This is, a, this is a true story, but still, you know, he tried to, you know, ha- he had his own vision of the American dream, couldn't fulfill it. And what's he do? Has to compromise and I believe, go back to I believe reality. that we've had we've had this discussion before that Lost in America is you think is the ultimate sort of movie about the American dream. Yeah. And I think American movie is the ultimate movie about the American dream. Thankfully neither of us think American Beauty is no, about the American no. dream. I will say American Pimp. Because I don't want to sleep with me. American Sorry. Pimp brings tears to my eyes. Ooh. Um, and uh, American Dreams with a Z. Yeah. That uh that movie about the fake American Idol. You know what moves me? <laughs> what? Lenny Kravitz's cover of American Woman. Oh, Fucking I th- amazing. I thought you, you could have used that as a transition into your uh, number five. Well, how do you do? You really know what my number five is? I don't know if it's changed. Is your stuff. is your fifth favorite movie of all time American <laughs> Lenny Kravitz cover of American Woman? Because if, if so, only. <laughs> if only it's American Flyers. Yeah, about bike riders. If, if I'm mm-hmm. mistaken, no, it's actually a movie that's not about America. It's about loneliness, alienation, voyeurism, and completely being lost in your work to where you pretty much lose your identity in the work that you're doing. It's a movie by the brilliant Francis Ford Coppola, who's made such masterpieces as Apocalypse Now and Mm -hmm. The Godfather, but this would happen to be my own personal favorite of his, and that is The Conversation. With my favorite Gene Hackman performance, it's a very internalized performance. It's a very heavy movie. It's very difficult to watch at times. Um, But at the same time, you sort of get to experience the life of somebody who's into surveillance. And on that level, it's really interesting. Because it plays out in parts like a documentary where you're sort of observing him in his natural habitat. Like, he loves his job. He does it. He sort of does it naturally. And it almost comes as naturally to him as eating or breathing or Mm -hmm. sleeping and... You learn about the world that he's 
gets sucked into and how he's manipulated. And, you know, he, he sort of finds his own outlet with playing the saxophone. <laughs> but he's still completely alone in this world, and that's kind of what scares me about this movie. Like, I was sort of correlating it to how I am with music or even watching movies. Like, I'm so in love with them. And I never really considered them a job, obviously, but still, he's kind of in love with his work, and it's sort of eating him alive in a way, and he's lost in his own world, and the apartment he lives in, and, I, th- you know, obviously, the ending is really powerful. The, the that, final shot of the movie yeah. at which the end credits play over is pretty much the number one image from the movie that I... Yes. Also, and, and it's almost up there for me, like with something like Taxi Driver or the Mirror thing, or you know, it's not something that they play on AFI's top one hundred as much. Uh, I don't even know if the conversation made the top one hundred of AFI or whatever. I think I think they had their hands play, full of Francis Ford Coppola in that, yeah. so they probably people will play your Godfather scene or your Taxi Driver. To me, like that final image or him tearing up his apartment, like there's so many things in this movie. Even just the opening, how the credits play over the the uh, sound design. The sound design is really impeccable um, because you sort of learn as as the story goes on, like what he does and what he's hearing at the time. And it's something that like something someone like Paul Thomas Anderson later did really effectively in some of his other movies, where or Robert Altman, which I'm sure will come up later, where conversations are overlapping. And it's interesting that this movie is just called The Conversation because normally it's a really intimate experience. You're talking with one-on-one, sharing ideas, sharing you know words together. But in this world, it's kind of isolating because he's not interacting right. in the world. He's, he's not listening. part of the conversation. Right. He's I would imagine the titular conversation is what's in the opening scene yeah. um, between the, the, two, the, the two lovers. Um, mm-hmm. And he is not part of the conversation. He is no. outside of it. Yeah. Um, what's outside looking in is kind of what this movie's about. There are some, um, and it's a great character piece, and it is a great Hackman performance, especially since it is not what you would think of when you think of Hackman. <clears throat> right. Um, I mean, I've, obviously, I've discussed this, but you think of him in like Unforgiven. I think of him as very powerful yeah. and very sure and very confident. And in this, he's just totally the opposite, and it's never want like he's so fucking good in it, yeah. despite doing pretty much the opposite of everything you Minimal, would expect a Hackman performance, performance yeah. to be. But even beyond all the character things and all of the sort of the statements made and everything is, it is so fucking compelling to watch him work. Just yeah. even like scenes of him. Um, the opening scene is them surveilling a conversation um, between an a man uh, between a man and a woman using a variety of microphones. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene later where he's piecing together all these sounds, um, uh, and he's and he's. Tune, you know, he's turning up one microphone and turning down another, and it's so compelling just to watch him yeah. work. And it's I love movies like that where you yeah. watch the guy. We've talked in his element. We've ta- always talked about this. It's sort of the always thing I always go back to is the is the scene in Hustle and Flow where they're making whoop that trick, oh, yeah. where you see it sort of coming together and 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 sort of the creative process. And this isn't a creative process, but um, there's something so compelling, or even like maybe like the last scene in Big Night. Where all you do is you – it's the camera focusing on uh, Stanley Tucci making an omelet. And it's just – when you see someone like who's the best – top of their capacity just doing what they do, yeah. it is always compelling and it's – Inspiring to yeah, see that. Yeah. Always. And it's or it's just – and it's fascinating. But and, this, this movie also shows the dark side of being so enraptured with your work. 
that you lose sight of reality or you lose sight of your sense of self. And that happens to the best of the people who, you know, obviously lose relationships or marriages or friendships because they're so heavily involved in what they do. And they find it it more fulfilling. Well, the saddest thing about the movie is that his downfall is that he decides to take a moral stand instead of, you know, the sort of the the go-to wire quote, that's what you get for giving a fuck when it's not your turn to give a fuck. Like that's, that's what he gets. too involved. Right. It's sort of a, it's almost a, I believe I think I think Mamet does a lot of the same thing where yes. um, once you begin to operate outside of your designated function mm-hmm. um, and you try to be a full person and a human, that's when you become punished by the universe. And uh, it's and that's sort of the most tragic thing is. And then at the end, you find out is all for naught. Like, right. He wasn't really he wasn't really on to anything. In fact, he was it's the op. I'm not going to I don't want to spoil it, but. Um, it's it's very different than uh, what he actually thought was going to happen. Fuck yeah. Move on, sir. Move yeah. on. My number five is Badlands. Oh, yeah. That's, this this should be on my it's, list. That's, it's just a movie that sort of... Uh, I There's a lot of things you can talk about. It's a, obviously, it's a Malick movie. It's fucking beautiful. Every shot of it's great. Martin Sheen is incredible, but it's yeah. just... The two of them are... Some of the best. Yeah, Sissy, the best Sissy, Spake is, Sissy Spacek is easily my favorite actress. I never knew that until the Facebook thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> where, where we... Uh, it's like, what, really? 30, the 30 Days of Movies. I yeah, well, I was thinking... Because uh, Carrie. Yeah. Three yeah. Women. Which I haven't uh, seen. Badlands. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a couple others that I can't even think of right now. Um, but yeah, in the, so in the bedroom, maybe she was, a re- she got she's very good for that. No, yeah. she's very good in, in the bedroom. In fact, I'll, I'll look it up. But, um, the great thing about Badlands is that, um, it's, it's the, per- it perfectly captures. Yeah. Not, not that, um, coal miner's daughter, obviously. Uh, oh, fuck. <laughs> I forget coal miner's daughter. What's wrong with me? Uh, yeah. Let's see. Three women, Carrie, What's the other one? I, is it? Uh, there's one other one that I'm excited that. Um, so sorry, total uh, go ahead. digression. But I recently picked up a play called Night Mother um, at, at Half Price Books, and, yeah. I, and I lent it to Megan, and she thought it was one of the best things she's read in a while. Yeah. And it's um, an amazing play. Um, it's just a mother and a daughter talking, and shit happens. I don't want to give it away. This was made into a movie that's kind of hard to find, and I found it on eBay for like five bucks. Sissy Spacex in it. Nice. I cannot wait to watch. As this. the mother or the daughter? What era? As the daughter. So, okay. Yeah, it's. It, I'm really excited to watch because the play. Mo- you know, like I, I, I can definitely be moved by things I read, but this one pretty much, in the same way, I've, watching a movie, anyway, I was crying. I've so. seen. I've seen two Malick movies. Yeah. Badlands, Days of Heaven. I didn't see Days of Heaven again because I didn't get it. Those are my two favorites. I did not get Days of Heaven, but I did not have any kind of connection to it. I don't know. I, I feel like there was something I was missing with Days of Heaven. Interesting. Um, I, when it comes to movies that are like obvious classics that everyone except me likes, I tend to give it the benefit of the doubt and make yeah. a note to go back to it. Um, but Badlands is – I have a fucking really intense emotional connection to it. It, it – it, it it feels like the sort of wanted to get Stacy Spacek and go around killing people. I know that's every just sort of the insanity and yeah. 
and the shared delusion that is the first time you think you fall in love, which yeah. when you go back, you're like, oh, that I, my understanding of love was so like I, I, I didn't know what the fuck love was. But it's it's you like this. You want to know what love is? Yeah, right, right. It's it's a uh, what's the French word? French phrase? Amour fou? Uh, the insanity of two? No, um, that's amore. No, that's uh, that's 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 when the moon uh, hits your eye like a big pizza pie. Oh, okay. Actually, that's amore. Um, but it's it's just this feeling, and then this these like it's it's just a very big feelings movie where I watch it and I'm hypnotized by it and I sort of fall into it and I fucking. I I'm really I find the most compelling sort of things to look at are sort of wastelands and things that are all used up and so I think all of or lands that are bad the bad la- all the bad <laughs> lands they drive around are yeah. beautiful and just the cracked earth and the and the sort of the farmhouse in the middle of nowhere with the windmill yeah. that's like like a, you know like a mile away and it's like Mel captures that so so well. And there's like and that, there's a scene where he confronts her dad and the, and her dad's like painting a her dad's who's a paint a sign painter is painting a yeah. billboard and there's like this billboard in the middle of a field and you, like and the way Malik shoots it you don't know what the context is and it just like it it feels like they're not <laughs> existing in a civil like in a city in a town in a in a community. It feels like they're just sort of floating around in space. Well, wait till you see Tree of Life. Well, right, right. That's my point. That's that's my point. Is even before yeah. he went literally in that direction, uh, he he was able to get that across. Um, and then there's Sissy Spar- SpaceX narration, which is like super. It's kind of like purple and it's like overwritten, and but it, at the same time, it's really poetic and it it's never exactly commenting on what you're seeing on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's always kind of affected. Uh, it's. Like, like, it's it's just so... It's such an incredible movie. I fucking love Badlands. Yeah, that would be in my top 25. Yeah, Martin, she- Martin Sheen is so yeah. great in that movie, too. It's still probably my favorite Malick movie, although I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure if I watch Tree of Life a second time, it might be put up there. Uh-huh. It's just really hard to describe that movie, and it's one of those things, again, like I was talking about with Paris, Texas... You'll either completely like be in awe of it, or you'll be like, "What the fuck am I watching this for?" I, I I'm gonna go ahead and say it's probably gonna be the first one. I hope so. Anyway, let's go to my number four, which is probably the movie that makes probably out of all the movies I have on my list, the one that would piss people off the most, and that is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. There's a lot of, no, I'm just I'm fucking with you. There's I like lots that movie. of people who um I like that movie. Including a future guest on this show, I believe, Mr. Matt Gamble. Which he called me a pussy on one of his podcasts and it's gonna be a great discussion <laughs> with him um about Brian De Palma. He's pretty much wrong all the time. Including <laughs> including about uh Magnolia and Paul Thomas Anderson because he's like, why would I watch Paul Thomas Anderson when I can watch Robert Altman? Now, I realize that, you know, he wears his influences on his sleeve and, you know, he obviously, probably Robert Altman is his favorite filmmaker. I'm not 100% sure, um, but I'm pretty sure he is. Um, And this movie is kind of like, you know, a more hyper-emotional version of Nashville or something along those lines. and One of his big, one of his big ensemble movies. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, 
it kind of plays like a more contemporary, you know, version of something like Boogie Nights with a father and son relationship at the core, along with all these different characters dealing with some sort of crisis. Probably the only character that doesn't come as across as fully developed for me is William H. Macy's character, but it doesn't really take any anything away from the movie at all. Because the time spent in that bar is really compelling, mostly because of Henry Gibson being such a dick and the super tramp music. Like, you know, there's something about every element of Paul Thomas Anderson's movie where he puts all of himself into everything, even if the character isn't fully developed or whatever, the storyline isn't as interesting or compelling. It's still unmistakably his own vision and it's fucked up. Like, most of the time, I'm just kind of like, why did he make this choice? I don't know, but the audacity of making that choice really gets me hard. <laughs> I don't know. Like, Paul Thomas, he just does something for yeah. me in every... Not so much in Heart 8. I will admit that Heart 8 is definitely his weakest film. There are things about it I really <laughs> like, mostly Philip Baker Hall. And just him and interacting with John C. Riley is compelling to watch. But once they separate, it's not as interesting. And, uh, but every single one of his movies after that is, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of in, I have a man crush on Paul Thomas Anderson, his, his, his style, his voice, I respect, I respect that everything you said, which is what I, sort of what I came away with Magnolia from is that, man, he really goes balls deep. Yeah, he goes balls deep. He goes full retard. <laughs> uh, I, I will say parts of this movie full retard. I'm yeah. going to go ahead and use the. I think the musical number is horrible. No, I love it. Oh, it's so bad. And I love Amy Man, so it's kind of hard. I don't know. I don't. But the the choice to make that, the choice to have <laughs> fucking a guy in a coma singing along to an Amy Man song, like you can find that really stupid or yes, pudding. I do. But I I'm just like I like God, I like Magnolia by the you. way. God bless you, Paul Thomas. Like, this was the best theatrical experience maybe of my life because I felt like I got this movie. I wasn't trying to be, like, elitist because everybody in the theater fucking hated it and wanted to boo, but I was standing up clapping at the end of this movie, and I never really do that, but I felt like, this guy's got balls, and I just love his balls. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. like, no, not just, not literally, but I mean, like, his vision. I, 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 I really get excited about his movies that brings me to my number my number four favorite movie of all time uh um <laughs> i'm sorry i hope you're not I, gonna talk i was about gonna balls just of fury i was just gonna mention like a gay porn name and i i couldn't think of one quick enough that's all right balls of fury yeah no i mean i like i, I know like there are this things moscato about, has gone to my head there's just, there's too many things about this movie that just I don't understand why he makes these choices, but I love the fact that he. You know what I really choices. respected about this? Frogs, everything, everything you know, about this movie. You, you do not, you do not expect John C. Riley's character to be the one person who's all right. I, yeah. In in sort of modern indie filmmaking, person who is religious is shorthand for person who is broken in some important way. Or. The scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman is getting out the Playboy magazine, I thought he was going to start jerking off or something, and like, because I just seen Happiness. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking, oh fuck, that Philip Seymour Hoffman, he loves to jerk off on but camera. He, but he plays, but he's so normal in this movie, and he he has such good intentions. He's a sweetheart. Yeah. And Julianne Moore freaking out in the pharmacy, like there's 
every scene in this movie works, even if it's. I think it's. Not I think it's. I think it's. I think it's perfect. heightened. I think it's heightened. I yeah. think people people got that. on people got on Julianne Moore's uh said, Oh, she was overacting and stuff. Yeah. Um, especially in the the scene in the lawyer's office, um where she's breaking down. But he has elements of a soap opera. <laughs> That's I think I think it works. I do think it's heightened, um, but I do think it works. I like the movie. I don't I think it has a lot of problems and it's certainly not one of my favorite, but most people can say that, and I won't argue with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's but I, Tom Cruise's best performance because I think he's playing himself. You're talking to the guy whose number eight movie was uh, Step Brothers, so right. uh, I'm no, not the, everything about. I'm this not movie, throwing stones because yeah. uh, my house is made of glass, and I think this could be my favorite score of all yeah. time. John Bryan, he's the reason why I like making instrumentals pretty much. So I don't know. Everything about this movie works for me. It's. You know, it's a, an emotional experience, a visceral experience. Everything about Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, like you can interchange this with Punch Drunk Love, Boogie Nights, or They Will Be Blood, and that's fine. Because I love pretty really? much all of them. I See, love the all funny thing, movies. It's funny you say that because I'd say the thing that kind of shocks me about Paul Thomas Anderson is how different all those movies feel. Well, yeah, but I feel like if I'm putting if I'm putting on Boogie Nights right now, that's probably my favorite. If I'm putting on There Will Be Blood, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love. Like all those movies to me work as I'm watching them. There, there will be blood. But definitely. Magnolia is my favorite because it's so fucked up. <laughs> um, I mean, just like the fact that it's a three and a half hour soap opera with a lot of crazy fucked up people trying to deal with sad, desperate situations. I don't know. There's something about it that that really speaks to me. Maybe as a therapist with a lot of empathy. I don't know yeah. <laughs> because everybody's so fucked up. Yeah, I'm sure that's 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 a big part of it. Yeah. Um, my number four movie I've talked about on the show uh, last summer. Uh, I don't want to go. Oh, too... I thought you were going to say last summer. I'd be like, way to go, Patrick. No, it's the uh, last unicorn. Um, <laughs> my number four movie is last summer. I've talked about this on the show. I can't remember what episode. I'm sorry. Uh, I forgive you. It's I, I want to okay. say, not, is it Almodovar's episode that I did? Anyway. Uh, I saw this. I saw this this year, and it fucking blew my mind. It's pretty much every emotion and relationship and dynamic that. Yeah, that, that was weird when you came pounding on my door in the middle of the night after you watched this movie. Yeah. You were like, "Oh my god, Jim! I fucking love this fucking movie." Yeah, I was a little drunk. Yeah, also it didn't happen, but no, it did. It's a great image. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's that's all the that's the impetus that people need is like, oh my god, Patrick literally drove in his car, pounded on the door, yeah, and you friend. live an hour away from yeah, me. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so that's brilliant. brilliant. But no, no, it's it's like every emotion, relationship, and and sort of feeling that I ever had during high school, uh, or just sort of adolescence. So I'm continuing into you know eight nineteen or whatever, but. Like is all in this movie at, at at one point or another in the movie. I feel like every character um, I've been every character. I've sort of have actually a similar relationship with squid and the whale. Um, I, I find that I actually, there's a lot of movies that people don't like because they find the characters unlikable. Most no, most Noah Baumbach movies yeah. would fall under that category. Yeah. Um, for me, Maybe it's just maybe it's just like horrible uh, self esteem or self hatred or whatever. Like I relate more to characters who are sort of horrible. Um, hmm. There's a lot of moments in Last Summer where but you're people not are, a horrible person. I'm not a horrible person, but I feel like I have done horrible things. Hmm. Um, well, we all have. Yeah, 
well, some worse than others. There are, and there are parts in Last Summer where people are horrible to each other, and there are some people are horrible to each other out of jealousy, and some people are horrible to each other out of fear, and some people are horrible to each other because the other people are horrible to her. And I, I feel like I don't want to, I don't want to be the odd one out. I don't want to be the one who's made fun of. And they want it, Some people want to beat them to the punch. It's like there's so many. It, it's one of the most honest movies I've ever seen about yeah. adolescence. Yeah, and it's it's really really great to look at. It's hard to find if you can find. I think it's all. It's not on DVD, uh, which is fucking bullshit. Mm. Uh, you can it, it played on TCM. Fucking so release this on Criterion. Yeah, it, it played on TCM. Uh, so perhaps you'll be able to find like someone ripped it. You'll be able to find like a torrent or something with it on it. Um, I That's believe how I found it. Yeah, but I haven't watched the whole thing yet. I'm excited because as I was watching, I was like, "Oh yeah, you know what? I could see why this could resonate with somebody." It, I don't. It has an ending that's like shocking, and uh, um, it's not. I don't think it's a hundred percent earned, but everything that came before it, it felt so honest and real and powerful to me that it didn't matter. Mm. So that's all I'm going to say about last summer. Speaking of honest and real, yeah. What's your number three? Well, I mentioned him earlier, and he's an actor in this movie, and not necessarily a writer director, but that's Albert Brooks once again. Mm-hmm. The only person to make my list twice. I'm surprised because as much as I love Paul Thomas Anderson, um, Albert Brooks was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in this movie that Patrick has a, a completely weird uh, I, would, I would say correct. No, nah, I wouldn't say correct. I'd, I'd say well, go. I'm going to go ahead and let you defend the ending of your number three pick. Which well, I'm it's weird because like go ahead and spoil broadcast news. I feel like I need to rewatch it to sort of understand it, understand your point and your your where you're coming from with the why you think the ending is a betrayal. And I, I don't. I kind of want to save it for because I mean, <laughs> there's only one other person I know who loves this movie to, enough to put it in their top ten of all time, and that's Eric Childress. Well, I don't always agree with, but when we really agree, we agree passionately. And this is probably my favorite screenplay of all time next to my number one movie. And there are things about this movie directed by James L. Brooks. It's called Broadcast News. Yeah, Broadcast News. Sorry. I, Sorry I it took it. so long. I buried the lead. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, no, I mean, this so much genuine honesty in this movie and it's sort of it's sort of set up within the opening credits where James L. Brooks decides to let one of his characters cry on screen and almost like randomly like why is she crying she has no reason to cry it's almost like a catharsis that she has to experience and get it all out of her system and sometimes especially the first couple of James L. Brooks's movies feel like that for him feel really personal and intensely revealing and honest and emotional but it's never in a way that feels forced everything in this movie that happens feels organic and um you know every character is three-dimensional in that they're very flawed yes they're very very human and and i would i would say that that's sort of the thing that separates this from like pretty much Every other satire on news, yeah, and like obviously the big one would be network, um, and and sort of the media and stuff like that is it it does not skimp on what it's trying to say, but it also does not shortchange the characters in any yeah. They're fascinating three D care like every three dimensional characters, and you know it's 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 incredible how much 
Like at one moment, I'm relating to Holly Hunter. I'm relating to William Hurt. I'm relating mostly to Albert Brooks. But they have moments where I'm like, God, what the fuck, guys? Why are you making that decision or why are you saying that? That's the wrong thing to think or feel or say. And everybody in their lives, come on, we've all had those moments. We've all had those moments where we say something like, wait a minute, why I say that? Or why am I feeling this? And I feel like James L. Brooks, you know, much like um, many filmmakers that I really like, could have been psychologists, like I, we talked about in the David Cronenberg episode. It's 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 almost like he has so much respect and empathy for both his characters and the audience that it, it's he spends his time on a screenplay and has a lot to say, not necessarily just about you know human interaction but about news and where it's going mm-hmm. and the media. So I love that this movie, you know, it also focuses, because as much as I love the characters and the romantic relationships that develop, the backdrop, the, you know, the editing room feels yeah. fully realized. Everything about this movie, the the boss. Another, another example everything. of really compelling scenes of the creative process. Yes. When they're running around, no, I need this clip. I need it now. I need, right. you only have, Two minutes, and they're like running around, and they're they have this idea, and you see it happening in real time, and it's great to watch. Yeah, yeah. There's a moment involving Joan Cusack that's really amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and every, I don't know. Everything. This is one of those movies that I don't know. Maybe it's because I have such a love for these characters and the whole movie and the whole experience that am I not am I not seeing your uh, reservations about the way it ends. I don't know. Well, okay. I'm, here's, I'm writing it off. Here's my point. Here's my point. It is a movie about. It is a. It is. It is about. Um, on a, on a commentary, social sort of commentary level, it is about how the news is being eroded by entertainment and how they're becoming the same thing, and how good-looking people and. Are, is be, is having good-looking people in front of the camera is more important than having talented people in front of the camera. That's John Hurt versus Albert Brooks. William Hurt, yeah. William Hurt. John Hurt John Hurt and the aliens exploded out of his stomach <laughs> versus Albert movie. Brooks. Yeah. Um, all right, so it's about that. And yeah. there's that brilliant monologue that Albert Brooks has. And again, it is what sort of separates – I've been watching a lot of Sports Night – and there's always this. I need to watch that. There's always a painful moment where Aaron Sorkin just turns the characters into mouthpieces. Like I feel like every show, every movie. I, I like, Aaron You Sorkin would not expect that. a show about about a sports show to turn into something where it's like hunting is wrong. But no, like, he does that every yeah. single time. Okay. I'm used to that. With Albert Aaron Brooks. Sorkin. Albert Brooks has a monologue. My point is, Albert Brooks has a great monologue about how William Hurt is quote-unquote, the devil, because what he is is he's coming in with a smile, and he's pleasant, and he seems like a great person and a great guy, but he's ruining everything that you care and stand for. Um, it, what's brilliant about this monologue is it's, number one, it's true. Number two, you, no one – she's not believing it because it's not coming from a place where he – it's coming mm. from a place of hurt from him. But it is true. In the end of the day, she finds out he fucking lied about crying on camera. Yeah, because he wanted to make a more. She One finds... of my favorite moments in movie history is that reveal. Yeah, that reveal. Yeah, which 
undercuts everything where you think, oh, it's it's about going to be about William Hurt sort of learning the ropes and sort of becoming a good yeah. broadcaster. And in the end, it's about – you think it's going to be about them bringing William Hurt to them. Instead, it's about William Hurt bringing <laughs> what they do to yeah. him, sort of where he is. All right? William he is the hurts. He is the devil or right. the quote-unquote devil according to Albert Brooks' net monologue. That's the thrust of the movie. Yeah. So why are they all friends at the end? What is the importance of seeing that they're friends at the end? What does that do? What is, how does that help this end the story? How is that how you end that story is my question. Uh, are they all friends? Yes. They're all talking. They're all in different jobs and they're all very friendly and they're all talking to each but other. But they're reuniting. They haven't seen each other. Right. But so what is, long. what does that have to do with the they're story not, that was being told up to this point? I don't think that they're going to automatically like settle in. And I mean, William Hurt and Holly Hunter are going to work. My point is it undercuts everything that came before, which is the news is important and everything and whether or not the news is real and authentic matters. Maybe a very cynical view of how things have turned out. I think it's the opposite. I think it's the opposite. I think he's too sentimental and I think he was too afraid to end it on a cynical note. So he had to end it where they're all friendly. I would agree that the best ending is Holly Hunter and the taxi cab. Yes. And I agree. I agree. But at the same time, that ending doesn't, I don't, it doesn't take much away from it for me. It's like, but I also don't see the fact that they've all become friends. They're just having a conversation. But why? Why is that important? Why is that important to see them like that? I don't know if it's important. It's just the note but that he chooses I, to end things on. I know, but... And maybe he doesn't want people to leave the I theater find, feeling I think, depressed. I, I mean... Exactly. That's my point. It's I a cop-out. Billy Wilder would not have that yes, kind of an ending. It's a cop-out because he doesn't want people to feel depressed at the end. That's my whole point, is it's a bad ending. It's a great movie with a bad ending. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. We'll anyway. talk about that later in the future, <laughs> I'm sure. The James L. Brooks episode. My number three is Do the Right Thing. Woo! Talk about a movie that does not have a cop-out ending. No. One of Spike Lee's greatest talents, I Although think. Although Kevin Smith had a cop-out. Yeah, yeah. One of, one, of Spike, one of Spike Lee's greatest talents is that he will raise questions, but he is not um, he is not arrogant enough to, to assume he knows the answers. Yeah. Um, the movie ends with the two conflicting quotes from Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. One abhorring violence and one... Uh, accepting and approving of using violence uh, and do the right thing is a fucking incredible movie and the best movie I, about race well here's the thing it's a brilliant movie about race and it's a brilliant movie about how people and races and societies interact but it is also and uh, i pulled up this article um while you were sort of introducing broadcast news um, I, I, I mentioned this in the Woody Allen episode, but Michael D'Angelo, one of my favorite article, one of my favorite columns on uh, AV club is scenic routes where he takes a single mm. scene, uh, from a movie a and sort of analyzes article. it. I've read that too. Yeah. 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 Well, he did one on do the right thing and he has this great quote about it. Um, uh, hold on, hold on. Uh, here it is. Uh, he, the, the quote is the movie was anal- analyzed nearly to death, but Hardly anybody mentioned how genuinely bizarre it was, how little it resembled almost anything in theaters back then, or for or today for that matter. And what it is a brilliant movie about race and about all the things that um that it that it that it tackles and approaches, but what keeps me coming back is it's this really weird movie with this roaming camera, this tireless, energetic camera, and this constantly propulsive movie and this loud 
jazz score that it's 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 such a bizarre and strange movie and it's so watchable and it's so exciting to watch yeah whether the camera is randomly uh follow it it goes from following spike lee's character mookie by the way he's doing a sequel he's working on a or that's crazy or at least a it take it has the character it's a movie with the character of mookie in it wow so and it's gonna if he's gonna be playing mookie he's gonna be him now after so. he gets done with his old boy remake um no no the, he's filming the uh he's filming the sequel now hmm. and old boy remake comes after interesting very excited about that though wow anyway that is interesting anyway like the camera will be following mookie and then all of a sudden it will go into mookie's perspective as he's talking to radio rahim and radio rahim is addressing the camera mm. talking about his four finger rings of love yep. and hate the night the hunter reference and uh talking about and it's and it's it's like such a weird movie and it goes in such unusual places and he has such empathy um and i think this is something that people don't ever ever give spike lee credit for is he has such empathy for the white and or in this case italian sort of characters um in uh in robert robert roger ebert has a really great um review of malcolm x he's great really great thing in his review of malcolm x about um how there's the moment where the white girl comes up to Malcolm X and says, what can I do to help the black movement? And Malcolm X says nothing and walks away. Yeah. And like if, and if Spike and, but Spike Lee holds on the girl and her and how she's hurt and like how he has empathy for her and you feel empathy for Sal. Right. I don't believe, I don't believe that Mookie owed Sal anything. I don't, I don't think, I think, I don't think that Sal is the victim in this movie. Um, I think I think Sal got into a fight with someone, and because of the color of Sal's skin, the other person ended up dead. Yeah, and but talking you, about a shifting of sympathy. Yeah, but you feel so much for him. Yeah, and and like he really wanted to make it work, but there's something inside him that can't do it. There's something I think one of the, the defining moments in cinema history is the throwing of the trash can. Absolutely, I mean, that's, and this this is a movie that they banned this from some theaters because they were afraid that it was well, going to fuck cause those riots. People, good lord, what's wrong? No, they thought it was going to cause riots. Yeah, because this is this is '89. This is this is a mere three years yeah. before the LA riots. This was um, there was I mean they this was an inflammatory movie, and sure, sure, and no, I, it, I, I realized that, but. Gotta be open to no. I'm not. I'm not defending. Vision. I'm know, not defending people who ban it. But I'm just saying. I'm just amazed that people don't. It's a first of all. It's a movie, and an artist should be allowed the freedom. I feel so political all of a sudden, but yeah. I mean, no. I mean, any artist, whatever their message is, should it, it should get out there. I mean, within reason. But still, it's like the message in this movie is to just simply to have, like you said, empathy. For all people. Right. And it doesn't matter. It's like, I mean, I, I realize we're never going to be equals as much as I'd love that to happen. We're still going to have different things, whether if it's, you know, um, differences in color, differences in, you know, uh, class, income, whatever. There's always going to be differences between us, but we all go through very similar struggles and have a lot of issues in our quarreling 
is mostly based out of fear. Absolutely. And this movie captures a and, lot of that. And again, tension, I do want to emphasize the reason why this movie is so fucking great is not because of all these amazing sort of interesting things and questions it brings up. Right. Um, it is because it is fucking pure cinema. It yeah. is It is the camera speeding towards Rosie Perez as Public Enemies Fight the Power comes on. Yeah. And she's in a sports bra and has boxing gloves. And it's at once sexual and violent. And it's like those opening credits are fucking incredible where it's where it's at the same, yeah, it's at the same time. It's, it's, it's sort of, it's sexualized, but she has fucking right. boxing gloves on. It's, and it's, and it's sort of dangerous with public enemies music playing. And they're saying, fuck John Wayne and Elvis. And like, <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's, it's fucking insane. And it, there's no movies like this before or after, or no Spike Lee is a singular vision. And that's what you I know. think people miss out because people are like, Oh, well, Spike LB, Lee, yeah. he always lets his, he always lets his message get in the way. Yeah. He's first and foremost, beyond anything else, a fucking great filmmaker. That's why he can make a movie like Inside Man that has pretty much mm. no no uh, socio commentary. No like a, there's a little bit, no political stance. Yeah, really. no real political stance, and it's just a fucking great thriller. Right. Spike and Lee, he's, he's good like that. He did that with Clockers. Yes. And, you know, I think I think he's an underrated filmmaker in that regard. But it's it's insane I mean, good, that people who love is, movies should love Spike Lee. It's insane to me that. That, that someone like Spike Lee, who everyone knows, mm-hmm. like even people who don't like movies know Spike Lee. Everyone knows him. Personally. <laughs> everyone know, knows like, him personally. I del- he I comes delivered... to everyone's Christmas uh, <laughs> family reunions. I know. I deliver Christmas like parties. baskets of fruit and jelly to his no, family. Everyone knows Spike Lee, and yet he's somehow still underrated. Yeah. And it's um, – there's another quote from the same article on the Do the Right Thing is – or. Uh, Hold on, let me. I'm sorry. Let me. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, the yeah the opening the opening sentence of Michael D'Angelo's article says one of the disadvantages of being a trailblazer is people tend to focus on the trail and overlook the blaze, <laughs> and it's so fucking true because people are Man. like, oh, so he's the guy who makes those racial movies and stuff like that. And it's like, no, he's the guy who makes those fucking amazing movies that happen to be from a perspective that no one else is making them from. Yeah, when we talk about our runners-up, another Spike Lee title will come up. Yeah. So you mentioned Rosie Perez, Patrick. Yes, I did. So you know what that means. It's it means you're number two. number two. Yeah, which we talked about very recently. Yes. So we're going to very briefly touch on it. I don't really want to talk about it too much because you just need to listen to the Peter Weir yeah. episode. White Men Can't Jump. Right? Peter Weir did not direct White Men Can't Jump. What did he do? He did uh, Fearless. Yes. We Gently... It's fearless. Listen to the list. No. Hey, go ahead, go ahead, download the Peter Weir episode. Uh, we'll You'll wait. You'll know why I love that movie if you listen. You'll know to that why movie. we all love that movie. Yeah, it's, it's an fucking amazing great. Movie. It's an amazing movie. Yeah. Well, anyway, so you know it now, and yeah, you know, you yeah. know what we think about uh, Fearless. I, yeah, it's it's something that I don't want to reiterate over and over and over again because. It has a very personal effect. Yeah. And you can just listen to the podcast. Mm-hmm. It's um, number two. No, my number... Fearless is my number two. <laughs> my number two is McCabe and Mrs. Miller. By the, oh. by the way. Why isn't that on my list? I want you folks to know that Jim is drunk right now. No, I'm not. It is really cute. <laughs> it's up. really cute. We had to. I feel embarrassed now. We had to pause recording because uh, you had to go to the part. bathroom. You, you probably didn't even notice the edit. It was so fucking smooth. But he came back. He was stumbling. It's 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 real sweet. Anyway, we it's gave like Mrs. If Miller. Winnie the Pooh got drunk. <laughs> 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 I 
It really is. Oh man, that honey wine. Um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is my favorite Robert Altman movie, and Robert Altman's one of my favorite directors. Um, I would concur. He's great. There again, there's just this other element to it. Uh, it's the story of a man, you know, he trying to build a whorehouse and like a sort of a, a casino uh, in uh, the um, Pacific Northwest during um, the old west. Yeah, some somewhere around that time. I don't know the exact time, but and he falls in love with the uh, lady who runs the whorehouse, um, who's a woman he can never have, and he gets in over his head with people, and it's it's about sort of the death of the West, and it's and um, Warren Beatty's so fucking good in it. Um, everyone in the movie's so fucking good, uh, but um, probably the thing that first, like from the very first frame, that fucking killed me. Was it the first time I ever heard uh, Leonard Cohen was McCabe oh. and Mrs. Miller. And, uh, you know, Leonard Cohen is one of my favorite uh, artists now. It's an interesting choice, too, to put Leonard Cohen in a Western. Yeah. And now at the time, at the time, people criticized it because it was a Western and Leonard Cohen's, it was a Western came out in 72. And when Leonard Cohen, the songs that uh, he chose were, came from like an, an album Leonard Cohen did in 69. Um, so they were like, oh, it's too contemporary, but, you know, away from all that, when I first saw it, you know, in 2000, whatever, it's, it was like, uh, if you don't know Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen is a singer, songwriter, slash poet, slash Buddhist monk. Uh, that, that last, (laughs) that last part is true. He's, he's a, he's a Jewish Buddhist monk. Yeah. He he wrote most, probably the most famous song is Hallelujah, which, uh. Jeff Buckley's version is probably the most famous version of that. But, uh, oh, he's so beautiful. He is one of the greatest songwriters of all time. And one of the greatest song I would say the greatest song he ever wrote was the stranger song, the whole, and that's what the movie opens to. And it pretty Ooh. much gives the plot of the movie, despite the fact that the movie was written, you know, some, uh, sometime after the, it, it feels like one of those things where like those eighties, where the eighties movies had the theme songs and, uh, it would, it, they would just tell the plot. It it pretty much sets up everything, and the way Leonard Cohen shot it, everything has this yellow tint to it. Um, <laughs> I said th- Leonard Cohen shot it. Oh, I'm sorry. Robert, those say Robert Altman, Leonard Cohen. It's it's same, got the same similar cadence. The same, yeah. Um, Robert Altman shot it. I one of the stories I heard was that he double exposed everything a little bit with he shot footage of just a close up of a yellow sweater because he wanted everything to look kind of sepia. Oh, wow. So I, I don't know if this is true yeah. or not, but what I've heard is that all of the movie is double exposed with just close up of a yellow sweater. So everything has a yellow tint to it. Well, if you read it on Wikipedia, Wikipedia don't lie. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I think I didn't even think, I think I read it on IMDb's message board. So it's oh, probably not true. Yeah. Anyway, but regardless, the whole thing has this beautiful sort of sepia feel and uh, Robert Altman has like, you know, the way he shoots things with, from the long shot and there's lots of people talking at the same time. <laughs> there's this, you know, the Robert way that Altman movie, it is a Robert. Uh, and, and like the snow is glowing and there's, yeah, everything feels dirty and yet like sort of ethereal at the same time. And it feels like yeah. it's, and uh, it was like one of the first movies I ever saw where I began to see the whole movie as a metaphor for something else as opposed to just the story, like where it was just 
the, 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 the just about the struggle. I never really thought of Robert Altman as like that kind of a filmmaker. I mean, I, I guess with Nashville, yeah. I mean, I think I he is. Like, I feel like he's so um, you know em- emphasizing character and and the process of how they interact. And I don't know. I don't know if he's like. I mean, he's so interested in conversations and how you know humans relate to one another that. I, I don't know. It's it's so interesting. I'm going to rewatch McCabe. I've only seen it once, and yeah. I've been wanting to see it many times since because I love it too. I never really thought of it as um, you know a metaphor or an allegory. Well, I or think something. what well the thing about uh, the thing that makes me think that about some, a lot of his movies mm-hmm. is that he does not focus on plot. Um, I almost feel like maybe if there is an allegory metaphor, it sort of happens. Do you think it it, it happens almost organically to where? Do you think he set out to do that? Do you think he set out to just... I mean, obviously, there's... The... I... It's hard... I, I don't... I don't want to get into the idea... I mean, I don't want to get into the game where you try to judge the director's intent. Yeah, right. Because that's not a... It's, you, number there's one, no way to know that. Number one, no way to know that. Number two, it doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm sort of a death of the author kind of guy sure. where I don't... No, that totally makes sense. I like, think regardless or not of it was intended, if it's is. there, it's there, yeah. you know? but um, And it's all about your interpretation of it, But too. because he doesn't focus on plot, things take on another quality. I mean, especially in a movie like McCain Mrs. Miller with its sort of camera work where everything kind of blurry and ethereal and glowing, or something like uh, Three Women where the plot doesn't it doesn't quite make sense and it's very dreamlike and there's a lot of doubles and symbolism and everything... Like it, it's about other things. Um, he is, uh, I think, he does do that. Um, I don't think, yeah, and and I f- and mostly, I feel it's summed up in the final shot, where yeah, he after oh my god, after he is he has pissed off a company that tried to buy the whorehouse from under him. Um, and they sent killers to, to take him out. And there's a very long and I should say exciting, which is not – you don't think of Robert Altman as the kind of person who do action scenes. Uh-huh. But very tense and very exciting scene. Yeah. Not a shootout because it's a lot quieter and a lot more stealthy and all that. But He sort where, of subverts the Western climax. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. instead of a, you know all guns and blazing, it's it, – he's sneaking around and trying to hide and – sort of uh, sort of trying to desperately come out alive and he just and in the end where McCabe is just dying in the snow and you see sort of and it cuts back and forth between him and the town which saved the church and the whole town exists in the way it does because he brought it to that prominence and he's permanently outside it um, never having experienced the one thing he really really desired which wasn't fortune um, or or respect it was it was uh, Mrs. Miller right and that speaks volumes and it's and it's a, and I, I i i just i and maybe again maybe i was just in a certain mood when i last saw it but i it just i feel it speaks volumes about mortality and just where you, when you die you die alone and that's what they say yeah um and uh it's it's just it's really uh, moving and touching and it's just such a compelling movie and beautiful to look at and i, I love robert altman agree. but it's my favorite robert altman movie I would probably agree with that. It's sort of up in the air. It's like, well, not up in the air because that's what Jason Reitman did. Um, between that and Nashville, it's kind of, kind of tough. I, I almost feel like you know because of my love for Magnolia. Some, like most movies, I don't really like three-hour epic movies anymore. I don't. I, I want movies to be ninety to 
two ninety minutes to two hours long. I like I but like these I, movies in particular because of the characters, because of the distinctive style in which both these filmmakers. Well, I think choose. it's I think it's about intent. Yeah. I think if you're trying to tell a story, then you should be able to tell the story well, and you should be mm-hmm. able to pace it well, and you should be able to master the tone well, and you should. But if you're trying to um, explore characters and create images like Robert Altman so often tries to do. I don't think the pacing and the exact plotting and the events that happen and, uh, and the arcs and everything are quite as important because whenever I think back at Robert Altman movies, I don't think back at the moment that character learned blank. Yeah. I always think of certain images. Um, I always think of Brewster McCloud, you know, doing pull-ups and, I or uh, I always think of you know, or the the uh, where they have the mock funeral in Mash, mm-hmm. um, or the the opening of Long Goodnight where uh, Elliot Gould is buying yeah. cat food for his cat and it's <laughs> and he's talking to himself. And by the way, the number one greatest piece of exposition I've ever heard in my life is a person talking to himself, which it's sometimes used for exposition. But um, he says he's going to go ahead and buy like cake mix or brownie mix for the hippie <laughs> hippie topless like women's convent that lives yeah. next door to him and they go you're the best neighbor and he's like and he just sort of like mutters to himself i gotta be the best neighbor i'm a private eye and that's how you're introduced to him as a private eye yeah <laughs> i love that but oh shortcuts is also another favorite and mostly i mean i love seeing all those actors work together and absolutely create this you know be a part of this universe and just sort of making la its own character yes so it's yeah. Shortcuts in Nashville are often linked, and rightly so, I think. And mm-hmm. but I think yeah, I think Robert Altman just he, forget about Doctor T and the Women in Gosford Park. I, I actually just love... bought Doctor T and the Women. Oh, it was, you it poor was, soul. It was well, I own I own I own uh, the company, which is another Robert Altman movie I haven't seen, but and I'm you not get to see Helen Hunt's hoo ha in uh, in Doctor T and the Women. I no, I think you see her butt, maybe not her. Whatever vagina, but but uh, it's one one eighty eight, and I love Robert Altman, so it's worth the try. I've never seen a Robert Altman movie I hated. Wait. No. You haven't seen Ready to Wear, which is his take on the fashion industry. That sounds pretty bad. fuck. It sounds like something he knows nothing about. No, he doesn't. (laughs) He he got a lot of the same players from um, The Player. Whoa, that was weird that I said that. He got some of the same actors from The Player. And and it's... uh, Oh, shit. You know what? You know what other thing he did that's really great that uh, is hmm. on, it's on Criterion, Tanner 88. Never saw it. It's a miniseries that was on HBO. There's a lot of Robert Altman movies that, like, why haven't I seen Brewster McCloud, Three well, it's Women? That's because, like Woody Allen, he's prolific as fuck, but unlike Woody he's Allen... He's dead. Well, he was prolific as fuck, <laughs> but unlike Woody Allen, his movies are a lot harder to come by. Yeah. Where Woody Allen's are very conveniently placed in box sets. Wow, he's done a he's done a Jennifer Jason Lee movie I haven't seen. What's that? Kansas City. Yes, yes. By the way, Jennifer Jason Lee is my favorite actress. All right. What's your number since one you movie? Mentioned, since you mentioned Sissy Spacek, yeah. I had to bring that up. Um my number one movie is by the great Billy Wilder. There probably wouldn't be a broadcast news if it wasn't for Billy Wilder. Because he's influenced so many of my favorite filmmakers, some of the more sentimental uh, filmmakers who are sort of critical of society, but also really want to create vivid characters in a romantic setting. And that is, um, I think his masterpiece, as much as I love 
Um, some like it hot. Uh, Sunset, Sunset Boulevard. Boulevard. Um, Ace in the Hole. Stalag Seventeen. There's a fucking uh, lot of masterpieces in that guy's credit. That I'd give anything to have Billy Wilder on the podcast. Bill, Billy Wilder is one of my favorite filmmakers, yeah. and uh, or was. And uh, if, if we're gonna, if you're gonna start telling me which filmmakers are dead, and uh, I, it does, it did hurt my heart to not have him on my top ten. Yeah, I know. I felt that pain. So anyway, uh, the number, number, your number one, one movie, movie. My number one movie stars Jack Lemmon. Shirley MacLaine, Fred McMurray, in the 1960 masterpiece, The Apartment. Oh, my phone just buzzed. It's fine. Go ahead. Keep going. Anyway, it's, um, it's a hard, again, because, because I have such a personal attachment to this movie and because, like, you know, and when I think back, I know I mentioned Magnolia earlier, but when I think back to my favorite movie-going experience, it was at, in Grant Park when they had movies outdoors and sort right. of like a drive-in setting only you bring a lawn chair and i saw this with people like um nick digilio and a bunch of film critics we all went together and met there and uh, we sat through this movie and at the very end of it i said this probably should be my favorite movie because of how much it speaks to me it's a perfect movie about loneliness kindness um what it's like to endure a depression of sorts hating your job wanting something better out of life trying to save someone in hopes it'll lead to something meaningful um it's got this right balance of like being really poignant and sweet but also really cynical and sort of critical of um it's a lot it's a lot sweeter and uh, more empathetic than you normally would think in a billy wilder movie yeah definitely and maybe that's why i gravitate toward this one the most but at the same time you know i just the portrayal of your boss as being this, you know, lying, conniving, deceitful bastard, you know, and sort of coming to terms with the fact, you know what, my job is not worth the pain and humiliation of other people or myself. It's sort of like Jack Lemmon realizing, you know what, I am better than this fucking job and I'm going to walk out on this fucking job. And you know what, you can, you know, people who, you can have your Jerry Maguire. For me, I'm taking the apartment to the bank, and, <laughs> and I'm inv- I am investing all my money in this movie. Do you really <laughs> think that a lot of people are trying to say that Jerry Maguire's better than the apartment? No, but I'm just. I mean, at the time, I'm sorry. You motherfuckers time, think Waterboy is good? <laughs> the apartment's great. At the time, no, I'm sorry. At the time that Jerry Maguire came out, believe it or not. 30 copies sitting at my box office video, all of them rented, everybody returning and saying, this is my favorite movie, I love this fucking movie. Yeah, You know, well, and, and it's a good movie. No, I'm not saying that, like, I don't, I I don't mean, dislike Jerry Maguire. I'm just saying that there wouldn't be Jerry Maguire if it wasn't for the uplifting Billy Wilder's portrayal of capitalism and, you know, sort of finding, like, a co-worker and confiding in them and realizing that you know, it's also about what happens when you're too nice, too. Yeah. And you try to help people who never knew they needed help or doesn't deserve your help. You know, Jack Lemmon is kind of a, you know, a pushover because he's letting all these pe- you know, all, let, letting all his bosses and coworkers use his apartment for ha- uh, extramarital affairs. And he's, you know, locked out of his own fucking apartment half the time, and it's really sad. But once he realizes that one of these people is a woman that he finds really attractive and, you know, he wants to have a connection with and, you know, all these circumstances allow them to be together. I don't know if they're meant to be together long term. 
and it has my favorite closing line of any movie and which is shut up and deal you know it's just like the fact that this woman doesn't say i love you too or i have these same feelings like her response to jack lemon saying i absolutely love and adore you and she just says shut up and deal and i just feel like that's a great response yeah then i love you too because that's almost like reality and to me the apartment is is like love and relationships put out into the screen represented in every beautiful way and God bless you, Billy can we, Wilder. Can we go ahead and say Jack Lemmon's one of the most underrated actors? He's perfect. He's so fucking great. I know. Oh! He, and, like, you know, he, you could say that he sort of uh, played that every man character, not in the same way that Jimmy Stewart may have, but just sort of like, uh, I'm easygoing, everything's cool, and, you know... You know, he he had his moments, like in Save the Tiger or whatever, but... And, like, he sort of had a moment of, like, complete antithesis of that with Glengarry and Glen Ross. Yeah. Playing a completely desperate, anxious, um, you know, asshole. Manipulative in, in that regard, and sort of like a, even more of a pushover than ever in that movie. But um, it, it's something about Jack Lemmon, his persona... You know, he seems like an everyman and a really nice guy, but he's a great actor. He is, and there's a reason why every time, before every take in almost all of his movies, he would say, it's magic time. Like, that was something he would say. Because he's about to fucking perform a magic trick. Yeah. Yeah, and almost like in an effortless way. He's about to turn script into gold. Yeah. And that's what Jack Lemmon does. That's more alchemy, but And that's also what Billy Wilder does in his sleep. People, just watch The Apartment now. Okay, Go ahead, um, look up every Bill, Billy Wilder movie that uh, he ever did. Pretty um, much all good, right? Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and let me let me look for the cutoff time. Uh, don't watch. Um, all right, everything up to he did a remake of His Girl Friday that wasn't very good called The Front Page. Yeah, although yeah. it did have Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. So. Um, I like Avanti. I have not seen Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Basically, Neither have I. Fortune Cookie, 1966. Nah, it's okay. I, I think Fortune it. Cookie's good. Yeah. It's a fun comedy. It's, it's not, fun. It's not everything it's sort of innocuous. all the way down to 1943. This is going to be a hard one to find, but if you can find Five Graves to Cairo. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant sort of thriller. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, totally. Um, Double Indemnity, Lost Weekend. Oh, Sunset Double Boulevard, Indemnity. Eights in the Hole, Stalag 17, Sabrina, Seven Year Itch, uh, Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, some like it hot. The apartment one two three is a very funny. Uh, I haven't seen that one. I've been meaning to see that with one. James Cagney as a mm-hmm. Coca Cola salesman. Very satirical and sort of very mean spirited. He's so good at satire, people. Yeah, Irma LaDuce. If you want to see, uh, you want to see Shirley MacLaine and Jack Lemmon again. Yeah. Uh, Irma LaDuce is another. We should say this for the Billy Wilder yeah, episode, yeah, yeah. but that's okay. I'm just saying. Eventually, we'll get there. Maybe our second anniversary. If I'm we just get saying. To that point. Orson, Orson Welles said. <laughs> About masterpieces, you only need one. Billy Wilder has about seven. Yeah. So, uh... God bless him, and you know what? That's a good segue into your filmmaker who... I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I love the movie you're about to mention. I think he's I think he's had at least four masterpieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. We've talked about... We talked about this on the Woody Allen episode, obviously. Yeah. Annie Hall. I feel like it's a very widely respected and beloved and critically praised movie. It's probably one of the most honest movies about relationships of all time, mm-hmm. where 
it, it is not at all optimistic about the uh, concept of love being undying and true and being able to conquer all. But it is saying, but you know what? Still fine. Still good stuff. <laughs> um, and that's really what I do feel about relationships. And uh, I think it's it's sort of a message that's been taken and put in other great movies about relationships, such as Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind um, and another, you know. Oh, yeah. It's sort of defined. I'm, I'm not going to say it defined the modern romantic comedy because I think The Apartment did. Um, but it is... I think the greatest uh, romantic comedy of all time. But I think the one thing people don't really um, give any hall credit for, it is in an encyclopedia of film technique. Um, and the reason people don't give it credit for that is because they don't notice it because it's all done in service of story, character and humor. Um, there is split screen. There is elliptical <laughs> editing. It's a stream of consciousness subtitles. movie. Yeah, Subtit- yeah, are subtitles, animated move, animated part. There's Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan, like there's breaking, breaking the, fourth the fourth wall. wall. Um, there's, it's it's literally, uh, it, they go back in time and they're yeah. there and they watch things that have already happened and it's 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 such a weird movie that, like I don't think people really give it credit, um, for being such a brave. And because uh, I think I think <laughs> art or not art. Sorry, Patrick had his arm up in the yeah. air like. Hail Woody. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very because it's very brave because it's Woody Allen is not yeah. known as a stylist. He's not people aren't know oh Woody Allen, you know, that guy knows what to do with the camera. But Woody Allen loves movies and he knows how to how to make them and uh mm-hmm. you every sure. frame of Annie Hall you see that. And and I I think uh beyond everything else, it is sort of the perfect movie for those reasons as well and i mean the reason it's my favorite because it's sort of uh we talked about this so i, I don't want to go too far into it but it sort of introduced me to the idea of movies as art because i was in there i mean it, it lured me in because uh it because it, 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 it's fucking hysterical and i think woody allen's really funny um and it's sort of about a midlife crisis which right. and i when i first saw it i was first going into adolescence and i think they're pretty much the same thing where you're just like, oh, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know what everyone else around me is doing. It feels like they all know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, I like. I think. I think midlife crisis is just like second adolescence. So it sort of hit me even at the right time, despite the fact that I couldn't actually relate to the events of the movie, having never been in a relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um. So it sort of introduced me and exploded my mind in terms of what a movie could be and what a movie could do. Um, and that was what made me a film fan. So Annie Hall, my number one. That's really important. I mean, it's like difficult for me to say, well, this is the movie that made me love movies because I could say, well, okay, maybe it was Back to the Future. No, maybe it was Pulp Fiction. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's hard to say, well, what is Why, the movie? I think, I think one of the key differences between you and me, the way we grew up, is you had a parent who was really into movies and music and l- introduced more you to into them. music than movies, but dad. he introduced, yeah. but he introduced you to them. Yeah, and and you shared those experiences. And I had parents who didn't really have any, really any interest for arts. They liked all the music they liked mm-hmm. from high school. They uh, they liked about like my dad. My dad likes about three movies. My dad likes Caddyshack, <laughs> uh, Top Gun, and uh, I think I think maybe he likes Once. Actually, I think that's the oh, one. Wow, <laughs> that's the one because it's Irish. 
Cause well, that's, like, that's really beautiful, though. I mean, I don't know. that. Uh, that's a movie that would be in my top 20. Really? Once is a really special movie for me. I mean, not just because of the music element, but the relationship those two share it manifested into a band that meant a lot to me. I mean, it's like they're so sincere. It's that that Glenn, that guy <laughs> is like so... I mean, maybe he's a fucking drunken dick and I don't know it, but with his songs and like his persona, it's like, I want to give that guy a hug. He's so yeah. adorable. And okay, I love his that's, songs. Yeah, that's great. But my, my, anyway, my point is, yeah. um, before I saw Annie Hall, I literally just didn't consider anything about art of any kind. Or mm, sure, sure, I was just, I was just movies are movies, and music is what is ever on the radio or the movies three albums that my music. parents own. Yeah, which is my my parents pretty much all they listened to was Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, Bad Out of Hell, and Born to Run. <laughs> that was I grew up listening to those three albums on repeat. Wow, that would be a whole other world. Yeah. Because, yeah. like, my dad listened to Frank Zappa and, like, nine different... No, you know, yeah, never. Bands that... Never, never possible. Like, my dad, my dad, like, hints, like, my dad get, gets a whiff that something's a little subversive. He right. shuts that shit down. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so Annie Hall, it was, like, literally, I mean, for you, I think it was more of a gradual thing where Back to the Future was just the first movie you super loved, and then Pulp Fiction had all these interesting techniques and stuff yeah. you never considered and stuff like that. But for me, it was literally just night and day. It was like at one moment I understood that film was an art form and there were, that it was an exciting world of possibility. And the moment before that, I had no fucking clue. The only reason I got Annie Hall was because it was on AFI's 100 Funniest and hmm. I liked I liked comedies. Wow. Yeah. So it, was, it, it wasn't for AFI. I think AFI's lists are horrible, but if it wasn't for them, well, I'm sure I would have eventually gotten into it. I don't like music very it. much, though. Actually, that's the embarrassing thing. I actually do like the band AFI. I did that joke again. How many times? How many times now? Like five? Five times. I think like three times. So let's go ahead and run through our runner-ups. Yeah, we have a few runners-up. I mean, I don't want to like say, let's talk about our 10, 15, 20 other movies, but I wanted to bring up five that came to mind really quickly. I don't want to go into great detail. But movies that probably should be in my top 10, but just didn't make the cut for one reason or another. And um, it's sort of tough to, for me to choose between either trust or all the real girls as being movies about relationships, one extreme version or another, one that's really sort of like hyper surreal to you the can point add, you of, can add of another, annoyance. You can add another qualifier to that. It's movies, movies about that relationships that, bore, that bores the fuck out of Patrick. That's too, that's too bad. <laughs> But stay tuned for January when we'll have our Hal Hartley episode. Maybe I'll have a change of heart. Maybe. but I'm open to it. Trust is one of those movies that I've shown people to, and it's much like Wet Hot American Summer. They're like, really? Why do you love that movie so much? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll try and formulate better reasons why. You got some time. I do. I I have ideas. I'm going to... It's more of like the hyper-stylized version of relationships that I think I'm going to go ahead and just read through these a lot of these um, are things that we've actually discussed on the podcast Um, and again this isn't anywhere of a complete list I sort of threw this together yeah but um, the top 10 go through your first go through your list first and then I'll do it alright Brazil we've already talked about good choice fucking great Um, uh, women on the verge of a nervous breakdown which we didn't really talk about as much in the Almodovar but it's my favorite because it's really funny is that the one I fell asleep during? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it was very late, but it <laughs> Too was because it's really funny, but it's also like fucking mind blowing camera work and cinematography and right. And it's got like and it, it's it's wonderful. 
Um, Sunset Boulevard, Billy Wilder, didn't quite make it. Uh, apparently, I don't like it as much as Falling Down, but there you go. Or Step Brothers. Step Brothers is fucking great. Uh, Grand Illusion, which, if you want to follow the lineage of Paul Thomas Anderson being inspired by Robert Altman, Robert Altman, very much inspired uh-huh. by Jean Renoir. I can totally see that. Um, yeah. Next year, hope. I mean, we we really it's it's really funny that we've got this whole year booked. But, well, yeah, and it's mostly because we do the every other week. Yeah, yeah, and we don't it, do it as often as other. And podcasts. it's mostly because like it's hard to watch. Can you imagine if we were doing this every week and we had to watch? No, no, I couldn't do every it. Every filmmaker's, you know, I, the week. I like I like that I'm able to really Space take my time out. and yeah, take my time again. Anyway, right, but. Uh-huh. Uh, Jean Renoir is super is a humanist director, just like uh, Robert Altman. He had a lot of he did a lot of things with dialogue and sound and mm-hmm. improvisation that uh, hadn't really been done before that Robert Altman did. Um, I believe Robert Altman remade in some way. Oh wait, uh, Gosford Park is sort of a remake of the Rules of the oh, Game. Oh shit. Yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> I haven't thought of that. Yeah, you're right. It's kind yeah. of a little bit of that. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, totally. And Robert Altman also focuses on class. He he, <laughs> he loves taking the upper class down a peg. Well, Renoir kind of likes to explore it. But anyway, Grand Illusion, fucking brilliant movie. It's one of those movies that, like, it's as I'm watching it at first for the first time, I'm, I'm just on the edge of my seat, and I'm just like, yeah. oh, I love this. I love this. What's happening next? This is so great. That's perfect. This is perfect. Um... Fucking love Grand Illusion. Uh, Stagecoach, my favorite Western. Oh, wow. Uh, it's got a structure like Wizard... It. It's kind of like a structure like Wizard of Oz or Star Trek... Or not Star Trek, Star Wars, <laughs> um, where it's like a bunch of sort of unlikely people end up all being together, and they all have to sort of work together to overcome this other obstacle. Right. Um, I love that I kind of structure. I do love that, yeah. yeah. There's that, there was, that was also in Streets of Fire, I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love that kind of sort of thing. And it's also like really touching and human and uh, John Wayne gives a great performance and he has like a really touching relationship with a woman who's either a prostitute or just a slut. But either way, she's run out of the town for her quote unquote loose morals. And it's, and he is not loved because he's an outlaw and it's like, there's these two outcasts and they find each other and they both sort of inherently understand each other. It's really beautiful story between them it's we'll catch up with it within the year it's a criterion so uh the servant which Woo! we we servant which we talked about is i'm i'm really excited i think i should see that again sometime because it's just and i'm excited that our next uh, guest after stephen ray morris will be the guy who introduced us to that's the right servant, so cool um crumb which is i probably tied for my favorite documentary with american movie yeah excellent uh, film and crumb is so fascinating das boot i love navy movies and i love the I love the tension, and then I love the ending, which puts everything into a different context. I love when endings do that. All right. And uh, George Washington, which we've discussed, which is just a brilliant, brilliant, and totally yeah, beautiful Malick-type movie. And as I was saying before the podcast, it's it's really because of how much I'm affected by all the real girls on a personal level, I'm, I'm, I'm more inclined to put that on a list of favorite movies. But George Washington, I think, in retrospect – especially after seeing something like The Tree of Life, which doesn't have a conventional narrative in any way, and is very challenging, but is also very moving. Um, I think George Washington might be my favorite David Gordon Green movie now. I mean, I'm going to rewatch it, but I, I sort of put the bias of like, well, I can relate to the things that happen in all the real girls, so therefore I like it more. Right. But in retrospect, I think George Washington is actually a superior film. 
Um, but you know, that's sort of up, that's sort of up to the viewer. If you like either, or you're cool in my book. Um, so here's some of my favorites real quick. Cause I don't want to go into great detail. We're at the two and a half hour mark. Yeah. Here are some of my other favorites. Um, it's sort of a tough call between Unforgiven and Rio Bravo, but I decided to go for Rio Bravo as my favorite Western of all time because it's fun. It's straightforward, and God knows how many times John Carpenter tried to emulate that movie. Look at, but right I, there. Yeah. I, I have not it. seen it yet. I love it so much. I own it. I own it like a big three-disc version or whatever. And I even love the Ricky Nelson sing-along, which people go, what the fuck? That's so ridiculous. I love it. I think it's cute. That sounds good. I like Ricky Nelson. Yeah. It's a, good, it's a good moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think Howard Hawks did that movie. It's brilliant. Um, a movie that sort of divides, not really divides a lot of people, but some people don't love it as much as I do. I tend to think... Um, it's again, Charlie Kaufman is one of my favorite writers and um I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and jump aboard the Eternal Sunshine train. Yeah. Because um it speaks to me. I've, you know, you've mentioned before that you know, Woody Allen's and Annie Hall in, in particular sort of led to the evolution of someone like Charlie Kaufman and Why well, I, I think Purple River of <coughs> Cairo yeah. led to that, but Yeah, yeah, but no, Annie totally. Hall but Annie I mean, Hall led to uh, him Annie sure. Hall led to Eternal Sunshine. Yeah, and there's something about the, the the just the way Michelle Gondry makes movies that feels very childlike, but also very personal and very realistic, mm-hmm. um, but really playful. Like there's a lot of elements in that movie. Like the scene with Jim Carrey turns into a little kid all of a sudden. That's a good word for it. Yeah, and I I, I don't know. There's something about his movies, even when they're not so great, like Science of Sleep. I don't think it's a great movie. But I'm always, I'm enjoying it as I'm watching it. Be Kind, Rewind, same thing. I'm not as crazy about Jack Black in general, but Michelle Gondry in, behind the camera brings me joy. Mm-hmm. And Eternal Sunshine is no exception and still my favorite. Charlie Green Coffin. Hornet is an exception, though, right? Uh, yeah. There are moments where I was like, cool, Michelle Gondry is here. For the most part, not so much. Yeah. Um, Evil Dead 2, which I brought up many a times as being one of those movies where... I became obsessed with what does a camera do? Oh, Sam Raimi is a god. I want to be a part of his world. I love. I just love. Let him lend me some barbecue sauce. Yeah, that's always going to come up, isn't it, Patrick? You're never going to let that die (laughs) because it made no sense. Well, I thought it was pretty cute. It was cute. That's Um, why I bring it up. Anyway, let's go on to my favorite Woody Allen movie, and that'd be Manhattan. Which um, you know, it's a tough call because you know, again. Like I was bringing up with Paul Thomas Anderson, Woody Allen's like like the top three Purple Rose, uh, Manhattan and uh, Annie Hall are all really beautiful yeah. masterpieces. We, we've talked about Manhattan. That movie's fucking great. Yeah, in every way. Cinematography might be what sells it for me above all things, but um, that ending is really beautiful and really powerful to me. And I don't know, the age difference thing, whatever, who fucking cares? Let's get on to... Um, Probably my favorite documentary. It's tough. Um, because as much as I love Joe Berlinger's Paradise Lost, I'm going to lean more towards Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven, which is a fucking weird movie. But a really interesting portrayal of Americana. And there's some weird characters in this movie, like how we mentioned with American Movie, that are very idiosyncratic, but really compelling, too. Yeah. 
And uh, there's a moment involving an old lady who doesn't, I don't think she has a pet cemetery or has any affiliation, but Errol Morris just decided to put the camera on this old woman sitting on her porch talking about her son. That's like really moving, but doesn't really have anything to do with the movie that I found was like, well, that was a really interesting choice, but I loved it. And Uh that's kind of how Errol Morris works on me is like, he just chooses to focus on something. It may not pertain to the whole movie, but... Like it's awesome. I can't he's a wait. Weird dude. To, I can't wait for the Errol Morris episode because he's someone who I've everything I've seen of his. I'm like, oh, that's really good, but I haven't seen much. Yeah, no, I think he's a very um, singular voice in the world of documentary filmmaking, and I'm excited to have Jay Cheel come on to talk about that further. And um, I think last but not least is a movie that went, probably again because of a very memorable theatrical experience. Um, and I know you brought up do the right thing and I'm kind of in more inclined to agree with you. That is that, that it is the best Spike Lee movie, but, um, there's something about the 25th hour that really speaks to me at the time when people were really confused and frustrated and, yeah. um, feeling It'll be a lot interesting of to see how movies. that movie ages. Yeah. Cause that feels like such a post nine 11 movie that it does. And the whole movie is kind of a metaphor for, 9-11 and how people were responding to it. And the mirror scene, to me, says so much about people' response, like just how they wanted to find a scapegoat after not being able to... They don't know how to process trauma. They don't know how to process what the fuck was happening after 9-11 to where they don't want to look in the mirror and identify the you know their prejudices or their... Um, uncertainties or their anger, really. It's it's a, it's a, it's kind of an angry movie, but it's more of like self-inflicted anger about mistakes and choices. But um, it's also about relationships too. And I think um, the father-son relationship is really strong here, even if it's not at the forefront. I I think like Barry Pepper and um, Edward Norton's friendship is really strong in this movie, and Spike Lee's confidence behind the camera was sort of re-emerged for me like i've always liked him and he's had some strong movies in between do the right thing in this movie but um i'd say between do the right thing and 25th hour spike lee is one of my you know top 15 favorite filmmakers and let's end it on that note um because i i'm grateful that we got to do this episode yeah because I feel like it's Thank you again, of, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you managed to get a two-and-a-half-hour episode of us rambling about why we love movies and why these are our favorites. And it's, it, it's, it means a lot to me because both music and movies have allowed me to build relationships and friendships with people, but they are therapy, and they mean a lot to me. They're not just entertainment, but, I don't know, they help me make sense of not only myself but the world around me. And thank God for most of these filmmakers. Absolutely. Especially Step Brothers. Because <laughs> that's... Well, that's not the one... I, I mean, <laughs> it's weird because like I don't feel like we had severe major disagreements. I feel like if I would have put Hal Hartley's Trust in my top ten, maybe that would have been the one big disagreement. But... I, I, I respect that you like Hal Hartley's Trust. I respect that it's like a... Whenever there's a movie that's super unique and weird, I always say, well... Obviously, there's something there that people are seeing that I'm not seeing because yeah. it's so different. They must, just must like that it's different, whereas I find it just fucking weird and boring and off-putting. And I can't relate to any of the characters because they all feel like they're 
speaking from 20 miles away. And it could be just, like, the originality of it really, like, I was like, fuck, this is so weird and and eccentric that it appealed to me. And I, I feel like sometimes eccentricity in a movie is, like, um, one of the things I look for. Something that I've never seen in a movie before can sort of make it um, more significant in my yeah. mind. I, um, Werner Herzog once did a movie called Heart of Glass, yeah. and in it he hypnotized all of his actors. And I kind of feel like that might have happened during Trust or something. Like, I feel like all the actors are in a trance or something. Mm. Like, they're not real. They're and then Maybe that's why I like about it, because in a way, David Mamet's mo- characters aren't very real. Like, the way they talk... Well, it's not, it's not that they're not real. It's that they don't seem to be present in trust. Like, it's there's something weird about them where they feel distant. Um, Which I found really interesting. Yeah, because, I just you know, found I it off-putting. I'm not, yeah. I'm not expecting that in a movie. Like, right. I'm, it seems like they're lost in their own heads, and sometimes I kind of view people like that. Like, where are they? I want to know. And sometimes I'm watching this movie, I'm like, where are these people coming from? I'm not sure I understand, but I want to. I, I don't know. That's the only Hal Hartley movie I've seen. I'm excited for the Hal Hartley episode next year because I, I want to. Some of his movies are shit. Well, I'm mostly. I feel like I don't understand where he's coming from, and I maybe if I watch some of the other movies and stuff, I'll understand better. Yeah, there's three or four of his movies I think that are really outstanding, but his the latter part of his career, including a movie with Sabrina Lloyd, who I think is adorable, mm-hmm. um, fucking blue. Yeah, it's so bad. But I don't know. He, I saw he was on Twitter, and he was, and him and Noah Baumbach were tweeting back and forth, and I'm, it was like, whoa, it was like '90s indie geek movie geek, yeah. like heaven, like they were just talking about. You know ju- what's so weird is like, kicking and screaming should be in my top fifteen. I oh, kicking and screaming is great. Yeah, I prefer Squid and the Whale, but yeah, no, I, I, there's something about kicking and screaming that, like, you know, people can, you're gonna have. Your I think kicking, and I think slacker, you, but I, I think love for kick you, and kicking and screaming is what high fidelity is for a lot of people. Oh yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. No, I mean, again, Matt Gamble's one of his favorite movies is High Fidelity, and I don't quite understand. Yeah. Um, but like, I under, no, I shouldn't say that. I understand why people love High Fidelity. There are things about it that really bother. I think me. we should probably wrap this up though. Fuck. Yes. Okay. I'm exhausted Thank you s- and drunk. Th- yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for for listening. Um, what a game! You want to go back and listen and see? Has <laughs> listen to Jim getting Jim and me both getting drunker and drunker. Yeah, it's uh, kind of I'm fun. sure we are really, really coherent and 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 lucid in there during uh, Text Chainsaw Massacre, and then like somewhere around like American Movie, I I, I drifted off. Yeah, and- it's like we became even more rambling and manic and weird. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. It's, it's 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 interesting experiment. I wouldn't so this do is a bonus it. episode. I certainly wouldn't do it every time. No, no, no. no Wednesday, way. Wednesday, we'll be going back uh, recording the Tim Burton episode with Stephen Ray Morris. Stephen Ray Morris again had technical difficulties. Uh, we wish him the best. His car battery died, so that's that's a bummer. Yeah, yeah. No, it's totally cool. We're excited. Maybe I'll have time to watch a couple more Burton movies. And uh... that'll be a really interesting. I've, I watched a lot of his movies. I yeah. feel like Tim Burton is someone who I both respect. And and it kind of hate, so it it'll be an interesting yeah, conversation. It will be for sure. Yeah, and we'll talk about the shittacular. Oh yes, the, uh, we'll we'll go deeper into and the we'll uh, July shittacular. Special announcement about a contest. As yes, well. there will be a contest coming up where you can win. Uh, cool some shit! Great prizes. Yeah. All right. 
So thanks everybody for listening to our bonus episode of yep. uh, the top ten movies from Jim and Patrick. Mm-hmm. We'll see you very soon, and thank you very much again for listening. Visit our website, directorsclubpodcast.com and send us an email, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapal. See you later. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, it's the Ten Crack Commandments. One, uh, uh, man, can't tell me nothing about this coke. Uh-huh. Can't tell me nothing about this crack, this weed, my hustling niggas. Uh, niggas on the corner. I ain't forget you, niggas. My triple B, niggas. For me, I'm taking the apartment to the bank, <laughs> and I'm in, I'm investing all my money in this manual, step by step booklet for you to get your game on track, not your wig pushed back. Rule number uno, never let no one know.